Welcome everyone to episode eight of season two of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shroud. I'll start by thanking our Patreon subscribers, Adam Hahn, Christine Welchel, Isaac Rennert, and Andrew Darby. To anyone listening, your name could go here if you sign up on Patreon, patreon.com slash recreational thinking. Our guests today are Daniel Cohen, Eugene Hung, and Lindsay Goldstein. Remember that order, it's arbitrary, but it'll be consistent throughout the game. So if we now, going in that order, if you could each briefly state where you're Zooming from and approximately one sentence about yourself, starting with Daniel. Hi, everybody. My name is Daniel Cohen. I am Zooming from picturesque Syracuse, New York, where I am a software engineer, and I'm happy to be on the show. Cool. Eugene? Hi, my name is Eugene Hung. I'm Zooming from Taipei, Taiwan at 3 a.m., but uh, and what, what I normally do is I, I'm a software engineer as well. Lindsay? Hi, I'm Lindsay Goldstein. I am Zooming from Chicago, Illinois, and I am a children's librarian. Nice. I know Daniel was originally supposed to be on last season and had some health issues, so I'm glad he's able to make it now. And yeah, it. very nice to be here. Yeah. All right. So this game is in four rounds, one individual, three specialists. The first round, one we'll have now, I call the three R's round. It often consists of me reducing, reusing, and recycling prior material. These questions, I used to call them a warm-up, then people complained that that made them sound like they would be easy. They mostly, <laughs> they mostly won't be. They're, it's more of kind of a throwing you in at the deep end type warm-up. Um, but these will be worth a tenth of a point as tiebreakers at the end if necessary. So for this round only, you'll answer to individuals. So if the first person the question is directed at misses, it'll go to the second, then the third if the first two miss. So the further back you are, less of a direct shot you have, but the more time you have to think and more potential answers could be taken off the table for you. And we'll rotate so each of you gets to answer three questions in first position, three in second position, three in third position. Then the rules will change and I will explain the rules for the next three rounds after this one. And just a general reminder, the content of the podcast is you talking through your thinking process. So don't internalize your thinking. Go ahead and share, you know, interesting connections or anything that occurs to you. But you don't need to talk just for the sake of talking. And we will begin with Daniel in first position on the first question. This is very long, but as I said, I will uh, copy and it, paste it into the chat. In 1938, the Academy Award for Best Short Subject won real basically the ancestor of today's live action short film category, went to The Private Life of the Gannets, a wildlife documentary produced by Alexander Korda, who titled it to parallel his earlier film, The Private Life of Henry VIII, and directed by what man? An evolutionary biologist and leading figure in the so-called modern synthesis, the putting together the theories of Darwin and Mendel, basically, this polymath also helped found the World Wildlife Fund, served as the first director general of UNESCO, and at various times led the Zoological Society of London, the British Ethical Union, and, though we don't like to talk about her nowadays, the British Eugenic Society. Despite all that, he remains less famous today than his novelist brother. Hmm. Well... You know, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it was, I was drawing a lot of blanks there until the last sentence, which sort of, I think might narrow it down a little bit. I want to say that I remember that, that uh, this author among around this time had some sort of questionable family associations. I don't know anything about his brother other than the questionability aspect of it. So I'm going to guess George Orwell, or, sorry, just Orwell, no <laughs> first name given. Uh, yeah, that's uh, a good guess, although Orwell was a pen name, I guess. If he had a, a sibling, their last name probably would have been Blair, which was his. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah good guess, but not correct. So I'll pass the question to Eugene. So 
So I also felt the same way as Daniel, that I was completely out to lunch and until the last sentence. And I remember something about Kingsley and Martin Amos. Something I don't... I, that's the best guess I have at this point. So I'm going to say Amos. So Kingsley and Martin Amos are father and son, actually. Uh -huh. But yeah, again, you know, good, uh, definitely 20th century British novelist. So good guess. Pass it to Lindsay. I'm trying to think of novelists from that era who may have kind of subtly displayed those kinds, these kinds of associations or themes similar to maybe what his brother was working on in their novels. And absolutely nothing is coming to me. I am so embarrassed. Gosh, I I can't place anything here. Daniel took my only good guess. Pulling a name. He's not even British, but the only name coming to mind remotely is Vonnegut, even though I know it's wrong. So yeah, I mean, Vonnegut did have family connections to sciences. I think his father, no, his brother, I think, was the one who um, discovered how to seed clouds to create precipitation. But yeah, as you said, he wasn't British. One, I think, way into that, I mean, in terms of thinking about Sorry, my HDMI uh, sometimes winks out for a few seconds, so I'll wait for it to come back. Okay. Yeah, so so in terms of evolutionary biology, right, there was Darwin, you know, who was a big figure. There was also a figure who debated a famous religious figure regarding evolution around the time, and he was noted for his defense of Darwin's theories. He was called Darwin's bulldog. Do any of you remember what his name was? Spencer or something? No, Dar yeah, Darwin's bulldog was Thomas Huxley. Oh, Huxley. Yeah. Oh, Okay, I there was, we go. When, when you said what you said about Orwell, I was like, well, I bet it's Huxley then. <laughs> right. Based on the novelists. Would it be even more embarrassing for me to admit that there are three book posters on the walls of the room I'm sitting in, and one of them is for Brave New World? <laughs> and yet here I am, I couldn't pull it. Yeah, he definitely had scientific themes in his in his yeah. novels. Yeah. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, he, he was a grandson of Thomas Huxley, as was his brother, Julian Huxley, who was the person in question. All right, now starting with Eugene on the second one. So Eugene, captured and presented to usurper Akechi Mitsuhide following the Honoji incident of June 21st, 1852, was Yasuke, a samurai who fought honorably in defense of the doomed Oda Nobunaga. Contemporary reports do not record Yasuke's ultimate fate, but they do mention two strikingly unusual things about him from the perspective of the Japanese. One was his tall height, what was the other? 1852. Oh, sorry. That's Oda, Oda Nobunaga is like 1582, right? That is, um, yeah, that is definitely a typo. Um, let me quickly check the, um, yeah, 15, eight, sorry, 1582 is absolutely the correct date. That is an uh, embarrassing mistake on my part. Okay, so now that it's 1582, the right century, um, fortunately, I, all I know about Oda Nobunaga is his demise okay and i don't know anything about yasuke so let me think how much time do we have technically there's no time limits um, got it okay this is great. the first round so you know maybe you want to save yeah, just a tenth of a point i know so i'm just yeah. gonna try to think about things what would be unusual about a samurai tall height is one thing hmm know a little about the period, like Miyamoto Musashi, and he was the one who popularized fighting with two swords, but don't think, I mean, 1582 is before Musashi's time, so that would not be it. Let's see, what else could be unusual about a samurai? I don't want to be to total stream of consciousness because I don't want to give clues to my other opponents. <laughs> um, let's see. Okay, I'm just going to go something with, off the wall. I will just say that he had 
two different colored eyes. Ah, okay. Yeah, that, that's a, a decent guess. A little uh, outside the box, which is fine, but uh, not correct here. So, Lindsay? So I'm sitting here trying to rack my brain for anything I know about Oda Nobunaga, and it's minimal. So I've been trying to also think of like off-the-wall things that would be odd specifically for a samurai of that era or otherwise. And what sticks out to me is that maybe he only had one arm. Is that what you're locking in? Yeah, it's probably wrong, but why not? Sure. Yeah, no, but a decent guess. It is not the correct answer, but a good guess. All right, Thank you. Uh, Daniel? To my great embarrassment, most of my knowledge of all of the characters mentioned in this in this question come from video games, both both the uh, Nobunaga's Ambition series and really embarrassingly, an iOS Pokemon slash match three RPG called Puzzle and Dragons, in which all of these characters are playable. So who is Yasuke? If I remember correctly, and I'm quite sure I'm, I'm messing this up and thinking of a different character, but I think he had silver hair or blonde hair, something to that effect. Is that your guess then? Sure. That could be also creative license taken by whoever drew the card. But Yeah, I, I, I'm not familiar with that game, so I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't really say. But historic, the historical Yasuke, basically, it's not 100% clear where he came from, but he almost certainly came from Africa because he is recorded as being not just unusually tall, but black, basically, okay. having very dark skin. I thought the Japanese were so insular that they wouldn't have something like that, but right, maybe the exactly Tokugawa shogunate. Which is exactly yeah. why he stands out in the historical record. Daniel, also... I'm going to need to know more about that Pokemon game later on. That sounds great. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, it's, it, can be a, it can be a real time suck. It's going on, ten, going on being out for like 10 years now, and I've played most of it, and it's embarrassing how, how much time I've spent on it. That's amazing. <laughs> All right. So starting with Lindsay on question three. Way back in episode six of this podcast, I mentioned that Hugh Downs and Barbara Walters were first paired together, not on 2020, but on the syndicated 70s talk show, Not For Women Only. So that program grew out of For Women Only, a talk show hosted by what journalist who left it in 1971 when she was named chief of NBC's Paris News Bureau, the first woman to have any position at that level. Once a prominent art critic, this woman had to stop covering architecture due to conflict of interest after marrying her famous husband in 1954. Following that husband's 1961 death, she shepherded his legacy so tightly that one biographer has dubbed her, quote, a kind of Yoko Ono of architecture. Oh, and their marriage produced one son whose name was Eames. I thought this was going in a very different direction when I heard Barbara Walters' name. And now I am not sure which of the many parts of this question to hone in on to make a guess because there's a lot here i'm fascinated i can't wait to learn more about whoever this is when i research the math of this architecture sunday means that's an interesting name i'm going to focus on the journalism portion of this question and guess that maybe it was gwen eiffel is that where you're logging in yeah i don't have a better guess right now all right good guess but not correct so i'll pass it to daniel yeah, I don't have the slightest idea on this one. I'm trying to think of who would have been, who would have been of the right generation to be, not not even so much the art, the art and architecture stuff, which I'm not sure I know enough biographical detail on any news anchors of that era to uh, be able to suss out. But as far as female journalists of the '60s, hmm, I have absolutely nothing. So there's like, yeah, a couple different ways into the to the 
question. Maybe shifting your thoughts toward another one. Boy, um, give me something nice before I Hmm. Well, let's see. I mean, there are a name that comes up a lot in architecture and media is Pritzker. So maybe let's just say Pritzker. All right. Yes, I think I think the Pritzker family are the ones who who offer that prize. Um, they're actually pretty well established in Chicago, where where Lindsay is, and I think one of them is is the current governor. Um, yeah. Indeed, JB Pritzker. Yeah, I'm 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 originally from Illinois, but I I don't always keep up with the politics there now. Yeah. All right, so good guess, but not correct, and pass to Eugene. Oh boy. Well, I now know quite a bit about Eames because I was recently asked a trivia question about the Eames couple. I know that Charles and Ray Eames were the architects who made that chair, and unfortunately, I don't think that helps me with this question. Um, yeah, Ray is a woman. That's sort of the interesting thing I learned about her. <clears throat> Let's see. So I'm thinking about women journalists of the era. I remember a woman named, like, I think Helen Thomas. I'm not sure who's like the chief of the White House press reporters. That doesn't sound quite right. Um, I know Pauline KL is a famous film critic of the era, but that's not art critic, and that doesn't really work here. And it sounds like her husband was a lot older than she was in a way. Or, I mean, she outlived him by at least 15 years, I guess. Well, 17 years, so not clear. Um, I mean, thinking of other female journalists, Diane Sawyer, maybe? That's, she's a little later than that, and I don't really know anyone from the you know 60s, 70s era. era. So I guess, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I don't know this, and I'm just gonna say Diane Sawyer. A background noise or music coming from, I don't know, maybe it was an echo or something like that. Anyway, okay, yeah, so Diane Sawyer, again, good guess. You all kind of followed the, the journalist thread within the question, but this, I think, question is kind of like the first one in that it's someone who, despite their many accomplishments, is kind of recognized today primarily through their surname, so kind of trying to, to guess the surname rather than the person would have been the way there. And her sur I mean, she was a prominent art critic under her unmarried name, but she then, after she married, she adopted her husband's surname. So that was kind of became known as well. So that, you know, would have been an acceptable answer. So in terms of 20th, mid 20th century um, American architects, especially ones who were friends with the Eameses, because that is, that was where the name came from, Ray and Charles Eames. The one that we were looking for here. So her husband was named Iro Saarinen. And her, oh. okay. her name was Aline Bernstein Saarinen. Wow. I've heard of him, obviously, but this is kind of a backdoor architecture question, or at least that yeah. was the usual way into it. But also a way of you know talking about someone who should maybe be asked about in her own right. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Hi, future Yogish, with a very slight factual correction. Although Bernstein was in fact Aline B. Sarnin's maiden name or her name at birth, she actually first became famous writing under the name Aline Lauchheim or Aline Bernstein Lauchheim which was taken from her first husband. All right, next question to start, I think with Daniel again. Yes, Daniel, okay. Oh, I see, yeah, there's maybe a little lack of variety here because this is also another woman who, despite, uh, there's another qu a question about a woman who, despite having accomplished things in her own right, is primarily known for who she was married to, unfairly, but still. Okay, so 
Barbara Loden first gained notice in the 50s as an eye candy sidekick on The Ernie Kovacs Show, later won a 1964 Tony Award for playing a character based on the author's late ex-wife Marilyn Monroe in Arthur Miller's After the Fall. Today, she is often remembered for writing, directing, and starring in the low-budget independent crime drama Wanda, which was unappreciated on this 1970 release, but has since been hailed as a feminist landmark and was added to the National Film Registry in 2017. But at the time of her 1980 death at the age of 48, she was known primarily for being the wife of what multiple Oscar-winning filmmaker who directed her in Wild River and Splendor in the Grass. Barbara Loden. Hmm. Well, I mean, I'm trying to think of multiple Oscar-winning filmmakers here whose wives I may not be familiar with who would have starred in those movies. I guess, hmm. 50s and I, Kenny Santex, 1964, Tony... 48, so she was born in 32. I mean, those titles sound kind of vaguely Western-ish. I'm not familiar with either movie. I'm going to throw out a guess here and say Sam Peckinpah. Okay, decent guess, but not correct. Eugene? Well, this is not one of my areas of deep knowledge, but I'm just going to go after the multiple Oscar-winning filmmaker angle. And I used to look at the Oscar lists, but it's been a while since I've done that. And... Splendor in the Grass, I know, is in the 50s, 60s time frame, I think. So I guess I'm going to go with a director who I know was working around that time, I think. I'm going to say George Cukor. Good guess. I think George Cukor was, well, at the time, probably closeted, but you know, now famously homosexual. But yeah, good guess. Lindsay? I adore Barbara Loden. I've actually studied her a little bit, but I can't remember who her husband was, and it's killing me. Splendor in the Grass sounds so familiar, and I think I'm pinning it to Sidney Poitier, so I'm going to say him. Okay, yeah, so, um, okay, I didn't, I didn't expect that it might be, the question would be easier if I asked about Barbara Loden, because I think for most people, she's the more obscure half of that. Uh... She is absolutely the more obscure half in general of, of, if I can't remember, but it's funny, I can't remember who her husband is. I have that completely backwards. Uh, yeah, but it was someone who directed a couple of movies that won the, the Best Picture Oscar, Gentleman's Agreement, and On the Waterfront. His name oh, okay. Oh, Elia Kazan. Yeah. Okay, yes. I actually thought about him. Okay. <laughs> Oops. All right. Go on to the next question then. Are we starting on Eugene? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Eugene, quite possibly the worst joke in the history of U.S. Supreme Court oral arguments occurred when a lawyer named Jay Floyd stated, in reference to opposing counsel Sarah Weddington and Linda Coffey, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, it's an old joke, but when a man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, They are going to have the last word. This was greeted by three full seconds of silence and zero laughs. And when the case was re-argued 10 months later, Floyd had been replaced with a different attorney. So what case featured this obtuse and rather sexist gaffe? You know, it's rather fortunate for me because I think I just read about this. So like a couple of weeks ago, because it recently came up with discussions about what the new court might be doing. And so I think the answer you're looking for is that this horrible joke came up during the arguments for Roe v. Wade. That is correct. All right. We, uh, have that was lucky. <laughs> so, <laughs> have an I'm not really that deep into Supreme Court arguments, but I was reading an article about Roe v. Wade and how it might be affected by the new Supreme Court. Yeah. And I, I, I never want this round to be a complete shutout for everyone, which, which happened once in episode five. And since then, it's been avoided. And now it's been avoided again because we have an entry on the scoreboard. All right. Now, uh, Lindsay, In 1975, the strong man running a certain country decided to show up Western powers by naming a woman, Elizabeth Dometienne, as his prime minister. 
However, a year later, he dissolved the Republican government entirely and declared himself not just a monarch, but an emperor. This lasted until 1979, when the French-backed Operation Caban, C-A-B-A-N, deposed him and restored previous president David Daco to power. In which nation did this all take place? So, in general, world history is a little bit of a weak spot for me, but particularly world leaders, probably my weakest. I'm going to try and look at the names as well as the fact that the French-backed Operation Caban is the one that went in here and try and figure it out that way. Western power certainly means Eastern country with French influence. And show up Western powers indicates that it's maybe a larger country if they're trying to, or maybe a smaller country. It could kind of go either way there. Clearly, I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. Seem do all look pretty French, except for David Daco. I'm gonna go out on a limb and just name a country I know has French influence and say Guyana. I know it's wrong, but we're gonna run with it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if oh oh like Guyana. Okay, Guyana, I guess because yeah, yeah, because Guyana, like all of those in South America, the northern countries used to all be Guyanas. French Guyana is the one that's still there. There used to be Dutch Guyana and British Guyana. Yeah. Yeah, actually, Guyana was a um, former British colony, not a French one. I French Guyana came to mind, so I ran with it. <laughs> yeah, always, always good to guess something. But uh, yeah, that's not correct. So to Daniel. Sure. So my first thought on, on this was Haiti, but I don't think that's right. This is during the Duvalier era, so this wouldn't have anything to do with them, I don't think. So I'm thinking Sub-Saharan Africa based on the era, based on... The last name sounds, Daco sounds pretty West African. And in terms of countries, although they've got a pretty significant history of recent democratic rule, I'm not convinced that they always did post-colonialism. So I'm going to guess Senegal. Good guess. I think that was, that era would have been run by, uh, was it Senghor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. was an answer in a previous episode. But yeah, uh, decent guess. Eugene? I see. Um, you know, Elizabeth Domitian really rings a bell, but I cannot remember when I read about her. I was recently diving into the history of Chile because I was curious more about Michelle Bachelet, Bachelet I forget her name, how to pronounce her name, but um, I don't think it was Chile, but I'm not sure. Anyway, it doesn't really make sense with French. So I, I like where... David was go Daniel was going with Africa. And the only thing, I mean, from a accessibility point of view, I find it very curious that he not only named himself just a monarch, but an emperor. So, I mean, I know Idi Amin called himself like the last king of Scotland at one point. And mm, I mean, that's like the best guess I have at this point, I think. So I'm just going to go with Uganda. Uganda also a former British colony, I believe. Yeah. But yeah, definitely... Um... You know, Daniel saying of going for sub-Saharan Africa was the right track and looking at former French colonies there. The interesting thing about him naming himself an emperor was that it required a change in the name of the country itself, right? Because from 1976 to 1979, it was known as the Central African Empire. Yeah. But of course, we know it as the Central African Republic. Oh. There we go. Yeah. I was, I was, I was, I was, I had a similar thought about Upper Volta and Burkina Faso, but that was later. The dictator's name was Bokasa. He called himself Emperor Bokasa the First. Makes sense. 
All right. Last cycle of these. So one more with each of you in first position, starting with Daniel in first position now. What Norwegian-born entrepreneur who emigrated to the U.S. with his family as a child developed a namesake outboard motor brand in the early 20th century? The brand was quietly discontinued by Bombardier, its current owner, in 2020, but his name lives on through the dragonfly who owns the fastest boat in Devil's Bayou in the 1977 Disney classic, The Rescuers. Hmm. I mean, the only, <laughs> I can only name one brand of outboard motor. So <laughs> what I don't know is whether or not that's the dude's last name, but the one brand of outboard motor I can name is Evan Rude. So I'm going to say that. Evan Rude, yes, that, that was his surname and also the name of the dragonfly in The Rescuers. Very good. And it sounds Norwegian, so it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, Eugene. The main transit hub in downtown Tucson, Arizona, is named for the paternal grandfather of what singer who shot to worldwide fame in the 1970s? Not to be outdone, this woman's maternal grandfather held over 700 patents and grew rich off of inventing the rubber ice cube tray. A rubber ice cube tray, huh? In the main transit, I've never been to Tucson, and that's spelled incorrectly. But <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think it is. But I guess it doesn't matter for the podcast. So it's not okay. as consequential a typo as the other one was. Yes, grandfather of what singer? Who shot the woman? Okay, well. As anyone who looks at my Learned League stats knows, I am completely hopeless when it comes to popular music. So, um, <clears throat> 1970s. Well, I have certain singer on the on the brain from today, but that's not probably not going to be the right one. Let's see. Not to be outdone, this... Oh, yeah, it was Olivia Newton-John, obviously, but <laughs> that one's... Hmm. Yeah, let's see. Who else is in the 70s? Paternal grandfather held over 700 pounds, grew rich off inventing... All right, Arizonans. Hmm. Anything I know about Arizonans? Not really. Okay, so uh, worldwide fame. All right, I have nothing better to go on. I'm just going to say Olivia Newton-John. <laughs> right, yeah. As, as yeah. covered in the, the episode, I'm actually currently editing Olivia Newton-John's grandfather was father of quantum physics, Max Born. So she oh. definitely had a famous forebears, but she's not the answer to this question. So, Lindsay? This sounds so familiar to me, and yet I can't 100% recall who it is. So I'm trying to focus on singers who either first kind of came on the scene in the 70s or had their first big hit in the 70s. So I'm trying to focus on disco, because there aren't a lot of women in the other popular genres of the 70s, like metal and things like that. Arizona. I My mom lives in Arizona, probably knows this, and is going to be very upset that I missed this. So... Hi, Mom. Apologies in advance. I'm going to say Gloria Gaynor. That's the name that sticks out to me right now. All right. Decent guess, but not correct. Daniel? I believe this singer grew up speaking Spanish in her home and certainly sang it in a Simpsons episode once. So I'm going to guess Linda Ronstadt. I don't know that she's from Arizona, but everything else makes sense. Yes, Linda Ronstadt was from Tucson, Arizona. Both of her grandparents have streets named after them there, I think. Although her maternal grandfather was from Flint, Michigan. He was the inventor. Linda Ronstadt is correct. Cool. As soon as you said it, I was like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Senor Plow no es macho. <laughs> es más macho. Okay, and the last question of the round again, kind of a long one, and this will start with Lindsay in first position. Herma Thomas's 1964 recording of Anyone Who Knows What Love Is Will Understand was used to devastating effect in 15 Million Merits, a season one episode of Black Mirror, 
and has since turned up as an Easter egg in many other episodes. Not necessarily that recording, but the song itself has turned up as an Easter egg in many other episodes. But even Black Mirror fans may not know its backstory. The song originated when Jeannie Seeley, a future Grand Ole Opry star who was at the time working as a secretary at Liberty Records, saw a pantyhose ad with the tagline, anyone who knows what comfort is. Seized by inspiration, Seeley then buttonholed what 19-year-old then-unknown songwriter into helping her flesh out her idea into a full-fledged song. Decades later, when this man saw Black Mirror, he instantly recognized the song, but it took him a full day to realize that he had written it. I love Black Mirror, and I love this episode in particular. And so I immediately, like, I'm trying very hard not to sing the song out loud right now for copyright purposes, of course. I'm just trying to place someone who would have been 19 before 1964 and still alive in about 2014, 15, when this episode came out. So it's got to be somebody, and I say this with all due respect, very old. Also indicated by the fact that it took the primal day to realize he had written it. Very old country singer who was alive in 2015. I, I have an idea, but I can't remember his name. And I'm afraid to use too many details out loud to give my opponents the edge here. Ah, oh, what's his name? I'm going to go with Charlie Pride. All right. Decent guess. Not correct. Daniel? I was following kind of the same logical path that Lindsay was, but I'm not convinced that it's a country songwriter there's there's one i really want to guess but I, i'm pretty sure it's not him because i'm very familiar with this catalog it's not very big i'm not gonna say who that is but somebody who did write an awful lot of songs and kind of was around doing a lot of in-house songwriting at the same in the same era maybe not so much in nashville but certainly in new york and who wrote a lot of songs with lengthy parenthetical titles like that is burt Bacharach. that is a very good guess but not correct and so eugene Interesting you bring up 15 Million Merits. I actually saw that episode last year and I was very struck by it. I thought it was a really good episode. Then I went online to read reviews about it and people were like saying this was not a very successful episode. So I was like, wow, I guess my taste is not what most people think. And then I saw your blog, Yogesh, and how you wrote about 15 Million Merits and how you thought it was one of like the best episodes of television ever, <laughs> I think. And it's like, wow. I guess uh, we share the same taste in television then. But unfortunately, as I said, I am completely ignorant about popular music. So when it comes to 1960s, I guess the only thing I could think of is like Barry Manilow, and that's it. So Barry Manilow it is. Yeah, Barry Manilow did write some commercial jingles that we don't associate with him. He had a kind of a commercial career before making it big as a popular singer. But yeah, I think, yeah, Lindsay's dating of the episode was slightly off, I think. I'm just going to go ahead and boast about, at least at that time, being kind of ahead of the curve when it came to popular culture, because I knew about Black Mirror when it was still only in British TV before it had kind of crossed the Atlantic. So I think that episode actually aired around like 2010, 2011. It oh, didn't, wow. Yeah, it didn't become known until the show itself became popular in America. But I think because, yeah, up until this year, or up until last year, every 40 years, I had done a list of my top 100 TV episodes. I'm pretty sure in 2012, 15 million merits I put at the number one spot. So it must have aired before then. Uh, that's not really relevant to the answer here. But yeah, the answer, again, this, you know, at least three of us, I think, are, you know, big fans of that episode. And we, like I said, even Black Mirror fans don't know the song's backstory. It was actually co-written very, very early in his career by someone who went on to write in a fairly different style and who almost always wrote alone. This was a very rare collaboration for him. 
His name is Randy Newman. Wow. That is not who I was expecting you to say. I don't know what I was expecting, but it was not that. Which just goes to prove to me that Randy Newman continues to do things in his career that will completely surprise me, such as Faust the Satanic Musical, which is another wonderful thing that he has done. Yes, I've written a blog entry before about Randy Newman's Faust. Yeah, much more multi, much more uh, diverse artist than many people give him credit for. People really only know him for Toy Story, which is quite a shame. I was thinking about I was thinking about Jimmy Webb, but I'm not sure if I'm not sure if many people know who Jimmy Webb is enough to merit a then, a then unknown in that clue. <laughs> yeah, I I saw Jimmy Webb in person once, but yeah, no, I definitely know who he is. But I think I I mentioned. Well, I mean, everyone could probably name a Jimmy Webb song if they if they if they heard it. They just might not know that Jimmy Webb wrote it. Yeah, in my I think in the OQL friendly I wrote, I wrote a pair around Jimmy Webb songs. Yeah. All right. So we end that round. Daniel zero point two, Eugene zero point one, Lindsay zero point zero. Obviously, not at all determinative of the game in general. Okay. So now we'll go into the first official round. Here, the rules will change a bit. So in this round, in all successive rounds, each of you will get three specialist questions related to your categories. Standard caveat, it's not intended to be a fair and comprehensive test of your knowledge of them. The questions may relate directly or obliquely. To give everyone their toes, I won't reveal the categories until they become evident. So the twist is before you can answer your specialist question, your two opponents can work together to try and steal the points from you. You'll only get a chance to answer for points if your opponents miss. And if I pass the question to you without saying whether they've missed, just assume they have because you won't get points at all if they got it right. And I'll usually cut you off fairly quickly if they did get it right. And as in previous episodes, there might occasionally be bonuses. If a question is stolen from you, you might be able to answer another question for half the points of the seal. Those are kind of irregularly sprinkled in. They're just, well, bonuses, so they won't accompany every question. And the bonuses will relate to the question. They won't always be in the same category or at the same level of difficulty. So these questions in this round are not all that hard. They'll be worth two points as a steal, one point as a specialist, and a bonus will be worth one point. And now and for the rest of the game, the points will go to both stealers, even if only one knew the answer. Okay. All right. So we'll begin with Eugene and Lindsay working together to try and steal from Daniel. Beyond yeah. Chand is considered... And in what, in, in what category would this be, by the way? <laughs> like I said, I won't, I won't reveal okay. them, but, you know. I don't, re I don't remember what I submitted over a year ago when I did that, so... Right, yeah. That's why I could, I could give you a chance to revise them, especially okay. since, you know, you're, unlike most people on this podcast, you provided very generic categories. Okay, um, great. All right. <laughs> I don't know if that's better or worse for us. I probably, will, probably <laughs> worse for me. All right. Dion Chand is considered India's greatest athlete to the extent that his birthday is celebrated as National Sports Day, and he is the namesake of the government's award for lifetime achievement in sports and games. What sport or sporting activities was he renowned for playing? Sports questions. Immediately not my area. <laughs> Yan Chand, India. Okay. So my instinct was cricket, but I also know that cricket wasn't, cricket is fairly recent to India, I think. No, that's Pakistan. My instinct is cricket, but I also don't know if my sports instinct is at all trustworthy. The thing is, like, India's greatest athlete, right? I mean, I know, like, I know some Indian cricketers, and I've never heard of Yan Chand, like, Sachin Tendulkar, I think, is one of the most famous. So, I mean, I'm not going to go to the mat on that. I, I like he could very well be like the most famous cricketer in Indian history. But <clears throat> I would like to think that I would have heard of the greatest cricketer of all time, and I think it's Sachin Tendulkar. So, um, if cricket is something you remotely follow, I follow it zero. My exposure to cricket is just watching British quiz shows. So, uh, 
and even that is I don't retain it. So I would trust you that it's probably not cricket. Trying to think of what it could be then. Well, what are great Indian sports? Is Jayalai from there or? Hiyalai or Jayalai, I can never remember how to pronounce it. I don't know, I don't know how, I don't, I've never heard it pronounced. I just. I think it. it's Hiyalai. Hiyalai, okay, Hiyalai. Is that? the Indian? I, I don't know. I barely know American sports, so I'm not a very good teammate for this and I apologize. Um, uh, let's see, I know, I think Pakistan really likes field hockey. But that he's not. This is not a Pakistani question. This is an Indian question. So I'm also trying to think of. Obviously, India was a British colony for quite some time. Mm-hmm. So sports with British influence. My mind goes to things like polo. He might be a polo player. That is a good, an especially interesting, if it's a, yeah. an award from that's if it's a lifetime achievement. It has been around for a little bit of time at least. And if he's on, yeah, if it's a government award, it feels like maybe his influence would have dated back to the colony days. So I'm trying to think of other British sports, but polo comes to mind. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, my knowledge of Indian sports is pretty minimal. So right, we're in similar. I, I, cool. Yeah. So right. I think uh, I think we should just need to take a guess. So I don't even know what high ally is from or where it where it's from. And then polo is a very interesting idea because of the British connection. Although it, yeah. I mean, I'm willing to go with polo if you are. So. I'm willing to try it. Swing for the fences. Why not? Okay. Polo. All right. We're gonna guess polo. All right. I'll keep quiet and pass this to Daniel. Sure. I mean, highlight is from Connecticut, obviously. So, sorry. It's just. <laughs> um, all right. So, I don't think it's cricket either. I, I, I have not heard of this person, but my guess is that it's probably a solo sport rather than a team sport, and a sport that's very prominent, a solo sport that's very prominent on the Indian subcontinent. That I think this might, this person might be a legend in is squash. So that's gonna be my guess. Okay. Yeah. I guess I think yeah. Pakistan was had the the cons who were cons, right? Of course were big in, in squash, but this actually, I mean, yeah, cricket is a very attractive red herring because today it's definitely the most popular sport in India. And people sometimes call it the national sport of India, but officially the national sport of India, where they were fairly dominant in the first part of the 20th century and then kind of lost that dominance afterwards. And yeah, it's the one Eugene mentioned, field hockey. Hockey, yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> I guess I could have insisted more on it, but yeah. That's okay. Yeah, even today in men's field hockey, India has more than twice as many gold medals in the sport as any other country. Yeah, in Pakistan, I would have insisted on field hockey, <laughs> but, but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> All right. Now, Daniel and Lindsay, to steal from Eugene. One military operation with this name was Pakistan's plan to capture Akhmur Bridge during the Indo-Pakistani War of 1965. Another operation with this name was UN peacekeeping forces attack on the breakaway state of Katanga in what's now the DRC. Perhaps the best known plan with this name was a fictional assault on Fort Knox in the book and movie Goldfinger. What familiar term, which bridge players associate with a seven level contract, titled all of these maneuvers? Oh boy, there's a lot of ways in here, none of which are particularly... Yeah. I should know. I should. I should know this night immediately, and I don't. All right. So I'm trying to. Go, I'm trying to go through the bridge end of this because so that's the I. only shot I have. <laughs> so am I, and that's not. That's not very helpful. Um, I keep wanting to say canasta, but that's a different game entirely. Right. Right. And that just means basket. So I mean, that's that's. No, yeah, it's not right. There's no help. There's no help there. Okay. So I mean, let's assu- let's assume that the first two of these here are probably not going to be very helpful so, so, so no. the, the remaining options are goldfinger bridge it's got to be at least a semi 
Anglican word if it's an operation A name used as many times and B appears in a bond. Could this be could this, could, could this be pontoon? I don't sure. I, I that could be because that is the uh, pontoon is at least a card game. I'm not sure if it's a bridge term. Obviously, there's obviously there's a connection to the you know boat bridge type of thing, pontoon yeah. bridge type of bridge. That's all I got. I have nothing, so I am willing to go down with the idea of pontoon if you think that might be right. For some, for, I, I don't. I don't really have any sort of reasoning to back it up besides the fact that I think it might be a bridge term, and it seems to ring a bell. Does it make sense in a military context? I, sure. I'm not familiar with how <laughs> operations are named. I know it's usually just kind of makeshift words, and it seems like it might work. That's yeah. That's that's that's. I don't. I don't think there's necessarily any rhyme or reason to it. You know, I'm completely open to a better suggestion on that one. I don't know that I have one. Is the problem <laughs> right? <laughs> I'll go with it. Sure. Right. We'll say pontoon. All right. Well, that's definitely a term associated with bridges. I don't know if it's a term associated with bridge, the card game. It very well could be because the vocabulary is incredibly large in that game. Right. <laughs> All right. I'll pass to Eugene. All right. I actually happen to have read the book Goldfinger. And so I know this very well. And so this is actually more commonly known from people who follow baseball and tennis. The term is Operation Grand Slam. So Grand Slam is the familiar oh. term. Mm. Yeah. It's also heard in baseball, tennis, and breakfast food, and many other contexts. <laughs> in <laughs> fact, yes. In fact, the, but the origin of the term comes from Contract Bridge. Oh, interesting. I didn't know yes. that. Yes. It was to, basically it describes the most points you can score on offense in bridge. So... That's when they borrowed it from to for baseball. You know, the most points you can score in, in, on offense in baseball is to hit a home run with the bases loaded. So that's that's where it came from. <laughs> Makes sense. Oh. All right, Eugene and Daniel now to steal from Lindsay. In a popular YA book series, Nick Maxwell, Mona Vanderwall, and the identical twin sister of Courtney De Laurentiis were all at various times referred to by what letter? Well, we got a twenty-six to one shot. Okay, so. I actually have a guess as to what the series is, but I don't think it's very helpful. I think this is the Pretty Little Liars series, if I'm not mistaken. I I know my children's lit from when I was growing up, but not in current times. Yeah, this is this is like yes, torrid teen romance, you know, 20, 21st century sexy YA. They obviously, obviously made a TV show out of it, and I believe it was books beforehand. And, and if I'm remembering correctly a show which i never watched and a book which i never read um the titular liar or something was referred to by one letter which doesn't actually help us out very much at all but i'm just pretty much trying to jog my own imagine jog my own own imagination here so what could it be i'm guessing it's probably that's fine eugene's muted eugene's (laughs) muted so now it's just me talking to myself all right um let's see i think she's off break now so okay Okay, cool okay yes okay so, so if, I, if my intuition is correct, we're talking about, again, a book I've never read, made a TV show I've never seen, but there's some sort of subterfuge and lion going on. What would be a good one-letter nickname for a pretty little liar? X? Yeah, I mean, that's the obvious answer, right? Like, yes. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm pretty sure it's not going to be just that. I know. You just asked for the obvious answer. So. Right. No, no. Um, identical twin sister. Yeah, why didn't we get the name of the identical twin sister, by the way? Hmm. That's very interesting. 
that's probably the clue, actually. That's definitely the clue. So what could it be? I mean, if there's... What would you name as an identical twin to a person named Courtney? Well, I mean, the Kardashians have told us nothing. It'd be Kim, right? K? 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 Why not K? Because then, it, like, it could be her, her name could just be K De Laurentiis, like K A Y E or something. Well, just the letter K, right? And then, yeah, <laughs> and then the dumbest logic I've ever. Called. I know it's the dumbest logic. I mean, but you know, let's look at the other names like Nick Maxwell, Mona Vanderwall. Does that make sense with a K? Like our Vanderwall Bonds? I I I I forgot most of my high school chemistry. Do you remember anything about Vanderwall bonds? Like, are they like K bonds or something like that? Or, no, I don't know. I don't know. So I'm just, I'm that, just trying that, to. That, that, that sounds a little bit too involved for a Tori okay. Bonnie series. I, okay. I like, I like K. It's, it's not X. She clearly knows it because she's smiling. And I yes. mean, it's, it's again, it's a 26 to one shot. We'll take a weekend. We'll say K. 25 to one. 25 to 25 one. We'll to say one. K. We'll say K. <laughs> I mean, in case it ever comes up, the forces you talk about in chemistry are actually called Vander Walls, which is very confusing because you think that's a possessive. You think it's, oh, Vander Walls force, but no, his name was Vander Walls with an S. That's not relevant to this particular question, but it may, it may be relevant someday. All right, Lindsay? I never thought I'd be discussing Pretty Little Liars and chemistry in the same conversation, but here we are and I love it very much. Of note, Yogesh, I think, was also laughing and smiling, which is covering his mouth the entire time. But this is the Pretty Little Liar series. You are correct about that. It was one of the first, after Gossip Girl took off, Pretty Little Liars took that kind of torrid YA, like rich kids who do whatever they want and also added in some very fun murder. Great. We love that. And took off into a very popular multi-season TV series that has also set the pace for that kind of series on a lot of different networks now. Courtney De Laurentiis' twin sister is named Allison. And she is presumed dead in the first few books of the series. At least in the TV series, she's revealed to be alive. But after she dies, her friends are haunted by somebody named A. Uh, we would have yeah. gotten there eventually. I get very few opportunities to wax poetic about Torrid <laughs> YA series. So I'm going to take that chance. <laughs> I, I think I deserve a, fra a fractional point for knowing that much about something without ever having, without I'm amazed having, that never having read or seen it and be able to know that much. I'm amazed that you got to Pretty Little Liars off of three names, one of which I don't think actually appears in the TV series. I only knew, I must have read a synopsis or something years ago because I only knew that there was like a, a single letter named character of some sort, mysterious figure involved in yeah. that somehow, but I never, never watched it, no. There are so many of them in the TV show, they are often referred to as the A-team. Yeah. I love Wyatt. <laughs> Uh, different nicknames in the Uber A, A, B. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is an interesting kind of valley to fall into. Have just enough knowledge to know what series it is, but not quite enough to know one of the trademarks of the show, which was that mysterious A. Don't get me wrong, I'm glad I'm right. I mean, if we'd you know, been talking about a completely different series, I would have just sounded like an idiot there. So, well, you could also kind of deduce from knowing me because the very first 1DS I wrote in Learning League was about pretty little liars. Yeah, was it really? was yes that's amazing we'll have to talk about that one day <laughs> all right now eugene and Lindsay to steal from daniel love actually didn't lie to us it really is a big deal who gets to be number one on the uk singles chart at christmas time in 2009 that spot went to rage against the machines 1992 single killing in the name as a result of a viral protest campaign that wanted to end the pattern set by the previous four christmas number one artists Shane Ward, Leona Lewis, Leon Jackson, and Alexandra Burke. So what did the people behind this campaign have against Ward, Lewis, Jackson, Burke, and their ilk? 
basically what were they i guess kind of protesting yeah. against? so i have as i mentioned before i'm a huge fan of british game shows eugene especially the big fat quiz of the year and the big fat quiz of everything and at one point the guy who started the viral protest and got killing in the name to number one was on it and i cannot remember what he said <laughs> but i know he was there so i'm trying to remember why the only thing that comes to mind and please interrupt me if you have anything leona lewis is notoriously a winner of one of those competition talent shows i think she's written got talent otherwise it's idol uk or something they have so many so it might be that machine of like simon cowell produced singles uh, as I said, I know almost nothing about music after 1920 or so. So, <clears throat> but I mean, yes, it's Britain's Got Talent. I know that from like Susan Boyle. But yeah, let's see, 19, 2009. Do you know when Susan Boyle was became a thing? Like, was that um, Susan Boyle was a thing? Oh man, I used to have the exact year. I think it's around 2008, 2009 ish. She didn't actually win. She came in. Yes, she came in second. I know Leona Lewis won in 2008 because I remember when Bleeding Love, her big hit, was a thing in both the U.S. and the U.K. I see. Um, but I mean, if we knew it was like 2009, for example, then that would that would uh, destroy your theory about Britain's Got Talent, right? Because then she would be on. Oh, no. But I mean, the people who won Britain's Got Talent in her year were some sort of like troop of acrobats or something like that. So it's not a singer. That's true. But I mean, it could just be that they were sick of talent show winners Mm-hmm. So, getting their songs to number one and so they just win against us no matter who won sure um, I, I mean it's a reasonable guess so it is i'm also just trying to think i believe if i'm not mistaken the reason that it was killing in the name which is because they really liked the song there's no significance there or other than like it being a protest on them being a big protest band right sure. i'm trying to find a more specific connection here other than like they've all won major talent television competitions like the American Idol style type competition. Yeah, exactly. Right? Basically, basically uh, amateurs who are trying to get their big shot. So that I think is a very reasonable guess. I mean, <laughs> do you want to go with uh, it? I mean, I have no other guess possible because I don't really know much about popular music. I'm sorry. So, okay. um, but gonna... if you want to keep thinking, you're welcome to go ahead. I don't think I'm gonna come up with anything better. I think I'm gonna be stuck on that for a while. So I guess yeah, we'll say that they were all previous talent show, talent competition television winners in the UK. Yeah, so before, right, kind of when I set this question, I kind of wanted to, it to be slightly open-ended, which meant I had to kind of make a call about what level of specificity I would look for. So I, I put some thought into it, and then I decided this is a first round. The questions aren't worth that many points. I won't look for that much, that, that high a level of specificity. So the actual show that they were all linked by is called X Factor. Oh, um, they're X Factor winners. Okay. Yeah, but I won't, I won't require you to say that. I'll, I'll accept the answer that you gave. Oh, we got steel! Woo! Way to go, Come on. But I will give Daniel a bonus. So, speaking of the UK Christmas number ones, the last last three Christmas number ones have all been by the same artist, YouTuber Mark Ian Hoyle, better known as Lad Baby. His hit singles have all been spoofs of classic rock songs, We Built This City, I Love Rock and Roll, and Don't Stop Believing." with the lyrics changed to be about what activity? (laughs) It's the kind of thing where I get like 10 seconds into the video and I'm just like, nope, go flatulence. (laughs) Interesting guess. 
possibly not unrelated to the answer, but not really related enough to get credit for it. But yeah, I think his song, yeah, have basically all been kind of changing the, the lyrics of popular uh, classic rock songs. The first one, the expanded title was We Built This City on Sausage Rolls. The oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I love sausage rolls and I've... don't stop me eating instead yes. of stop believing. I've, I've, I have heard of this guy. Yeah, so oh, I think, God. I mean, again, not wanting, I'm not requiring too much specificity. I would have accepted pretty much anything eating related, even if you didn't mention the sausages, but yeah. I want to know if he's got a deal with Greg's because they're the, they're the sausage roll guys. That's fantastic. It's entirely possible. I think he's, he's been donating the proceeds to something, something hunger related. Maybe I didn't really look into that. All right. Next question, Daniel and Lindsay to steal from Eugene. Not sure where he paused for a moment. Do we want to pause and wait? Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, that's actually a very picturesque thing to point the camera at. Yeah, it's a nice little setup. Hello again. All right. We were waiting for you to return. Um, Well, that was a very nice background that the camera was pointed at while you were. What was the background? Okay. Oh, I see. A painting. Okay. Yes. And now we'll continue. Okay, so Daniel and Lindsay to steal from Eugene. Born in late 18th century Poland to a father of Black African descent, George Bridgetower was a virtuoso violinist who so impressed Ludwig van Beethoven that Beethoven originally dedicated his Violin Sonata Number no. 9 in A Major, Opus 47, as a, and this is a direct quote from Beethoven, mulatto sonata composed for the mulatto Bridgetower, end quote. But shortly after Bridgetower premiered the piece, the two had a falling out and Beethoven withdrew the dedication. To whom did he instead end up dedicating his composition? Hmm. I'm decent with symphony names, but not sonatas. My instinct is to, to go Whistler on this and say his mom, but I, I have no reason to back that up. I also wouldn't be surprised based on what I know of Beethoven if it was himself. Um, well, okay. What, what, who else could it be though, though, based on the, based on the clues we've been given here, which there isn't too much, right? Like we've got aren't a lot. That's the thing. We've, it's got, a lot well, about no, we've got, we've got, we've got, could it be another Polish figure from that era? Could it be like Casimir Pulaski or something? I didn't know people knew Casimir Pulaski outside of like Poland and Illinois, but. Oh, we have, we have a sure, town, called, maybe. We, we have a town um, Pulaski here, but it's pronounced Pulaski. Thank you. Because, because we're dumb. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> this is com- completely true, by the way. Pulaski, New York. I don't know. I'd be down for that. I. Why not? He's, he, the he, only he, objection he, I have to that is that. So the only objection I have is that, and I think I'm lacking a little bit here. I apologize. The only objection I have is that we love Casimir Pulaski here in Illinois, like an unreasonable amount. Like we give him his own day where kids don't have to go to school. Like that's how much we love him. It's very unsettled and weird. And I feel like if there was a Pulaski symphony, I would know it. That's my bad logic as to why it might not. Sonata, sonata. No, it's look. The only reason I'm bringing it up is just because Poland is right there in in the question, and it kind of, it kind of, yeah, kind of, kind of strikes me as like, well, if you don't want it, I'm going to give it to the next more famous Polish person from this era, which is Pulaski. I think would be Pulaski. Yeah. Um, Um. I'm willing to throw that down as a guess. There's also just a good chance that, yeah, I don't, I, just, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't hate it unless there's something here that I'm completely missing. 
I mean, again, the only other guess I have is maybe himself because that's Beethoven for you, but I'm good with Pulaski. It's, it's up to you. Let's do it. Okay. We'll say Pulaski. Yeah, Illinois school children don't know anything about Pulaski, but they have positive associations with his name because they get a day off from school. They're getting better at teaching us about him, but it's still not where it should be. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, uh, Eugene. So this is actually one of my favorite pieces. I listen to it. I listen to it a lot because I think it's one of the most greatest greatest pieces written for violin and piano. And yes, uh, I believe there's a funny story about how when they're practicing for this piece, the violinists were complaining. The violinist was complaining and saying, "This is impossible." And then Beethoven was saying something like, "What do I care about your mewling, puking little violin?" <laughs> because it was like incredibly difficult compared to many of the other violin sonatas written up to that point. It was like a, truly a breakthrough. And so this is the Kreutzer Sonata, and I believe he must have, de- I, I, I'm not 100% on this, but I believe he dedicated it to Kreutzer. So in, in fact, the Kreutzer Sonata is actually referred to in a piece by Leo Tolstoy, I believe. It's a famous story called the Kreutzer Sonata about this piece. So mm-hmm. I'm going to go with Kreutzer. Yeah, and that is that is correct. Yeah, in all particulars. Very good. Yeah, I don't think Kreutzer ever actually played it because, well, I think according to Wikipedia, <laughs> it had already been played by Bridge Tower, but uh, probably because it was too difficult for him. It was, it was very, very difficult compared to the other stuff. <laughs> you listen to Violin Sonata's number one through eight, and they're much simpler. Violin Sonata number nine is like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, he probably was, you know, specifically writing it for Bridge Tower, so he wrote it to match what he knew Bridge Tower's talents to be. Which again, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that you know one of the first great violin players was Black. Eugene and Daniel to steal from Lindsay. A musical girl group called Donna and the Dynamos formed a central part of the backstory in which jukebox musical. Oh, that's a short question. Okay, Donna and the Dynamos. <laughs> jukebox <laughs> musicals. Okay, so. Well, I mean, I know Mamma Mia. <laughs> and what okay. else is there? Yes. Um, yeah, I mean. Musical girl group. Dream girls. Dream girls? Okay. Comes to mind. Probably not, but that's jukebox-ish. Jukebox, jukebox, jukebox musicals, you know, usually refer to like 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 Rock of Ages or something, right? Where it's just like a, whole, a whole bunch of popular music that's not really connected by any sort of artist or composer and just sort of shoehorned into a plot. So if we're talking about something that's probably going to be 50s and 60s, Let's see. There's something called Forever Plaid that I don't I know nothing about other than it's a jukebox musical in the 50s. But I think it's mostly doo-wop groups. Jersey Boys, which is Four Seasons, is another one about doo-wop groups. Is there like a is there one called like Be My Baby? Maybe I, I don't even know that if that's the real thing. But you, you know what I'm trying to you know, see what I'm trying to go with this. Or like I'm trying to maybe like carbon date it to some sort of like Ronettes era type of. Unfortunately, I, like I said, I am abysmally ignorant in this area. So anything you come up with is probably going to be better than anything I can come up with. I'm the guy who came up with very Madlow, right? If there was a little bit more data here besides just the name of the group, because I don't know, I'm not familiar enough with the plot line, part of the backstory. Is Josie okay. and the Pussycats any relevant here? I mean, that's all. I know there was a yeah. movie about that, but not oh, really. Josie and the Pussycats musical. Or, okay. Oh, um, 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 I mean, there's stuff like... Hairspray isn't really a jukebox musical, but it's around the same sort of era. It could be, um, I wonder if this has something to do with Carole King. Did she do something like Tapestry, I think? Beautiful is the name of the Carole King musical, but there's there's a okay. Carole King, King jukebox musical. Okay. I just don't know who Don and the Dynamos are. And, but, but, but the thing the thing of it is that like, 
the ones I can think of, the ones that I can name are like male dominated doo-wop musicals. There's a bunch of them. And and I don't think for, Forever Plaid is really obscure. I don't I don't think anybody is thinking about Forever Plaid too much in 2021. And I'm pretty sure it's not Jersey Boys. So like in Don the Dynamos. Who would Donna be in this context? I don't know. I'm, I'm, for some reason, Eugene's kid needs help. I'll pontificate some more. For some reason, I'm thinking about the Carol King thing because it's not a jukebox musical about Motown specifically. And I've, but I haven't seen it. I have no idea what the plot is. So, but she, um, I don't know. There's Eugene. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't think I'm going to be of any help here because okay, this I mean, is just I'm, not my I'm, area. My area. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking maybe go the Carol King route just because it's a little bit, it's, 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 a, it might be a little bit of a misdirection because there are so many of them that have to do with, again, unless it's some, unless it's like Dreamgirls, which seems way too obvious, or something related to one of those doo-wop musicals, which I kind of doubt. Or something I'm just completely not thinking of, or or if there's like some random like weird punk rock musical I've never heard of for some reason, but I, th- those are all the ones I can I can think of off the top of my head, and none of them really ring a bell. Okay, so we're gonna go through guests of. Uh... Beautiful, yeah. Beautiful. We'll go beautiful. All right, Martin, beautiful, Lindsay. So you named a lot of really great jukebox musicals. Eugene, if you have an idea, chase it. Donna, as played by Meryl Streep in the film version, is the older protagonist in Mamma Mia. They are a disco has-been group that reunites for Donna's daughter's Sophie's wedding. And so they sing at like the bachelorette party and all that. And then at the end, they they wear fabulous ABBA costumes and it's wonderful. So the answer is Mamma Mia. Of course. I only know one jukebox musical. That's it. So that's that my was it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anything about it. That's, that's, ABBA, yeah, so. that's, now you that's, do. That's what I'm good for in, in any of these competitions is leading people down many wrong rabbit holes. I like your rabbit hole. I like, I never realized how many jukebox musicals are so male dominated because so much of the early music scene is so male dominated, sure, yeah. especially when there are musicals that are based on specific artists. But, but yeah, this one is, despite the, the interesting plot point being figuring out which of the three men is her dad, it's a very female power musical. It's a lot of fun. I really didn't pay much attention to. I've always seen. I actually did know there was a woman named Donna in that in Mamma Mia. Come to think of it, so I should have I should have followed that further down. So yeah, okay. Yeah. One of my favorite things about this podcast is when people who don't know the answer just blurt it out without realizing that they've said it, and then sometimes they move away from it and come back to it. Sometimes they just move away from it after that. That's twice we've moved away from Eugene's correct answers, and I feel really bad about it. <laughs> yeah, but I'm just not confident in either of those. So. It happens to many people in the club, yeah. And, and by the way, yeah, Dream Girls is not a jukebox musical. It was original. No, that's just a Motown original songs. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Then several more songs were written for the movie as well. But, all right. Daniel and Lindsay now to steal from Eugene. Uh, wait, 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 we don't have to steal Daniel? from Daniel? You're right, you're right. It is Eugene and Lindsay now to steal from Daniel first. Sorry. Okay. Eugene and Lindsay to steal from Daniel. Canada's Devon Island, D-E-V-O-N, is the world's largest island with what characteristic? Oh, I actually think I know this. I remember reading about this, I think. So I think it's the world's largest uninhabited island. So if that's, my mind went to Devon hairless cats. So yes, you're probably correct. I'm good with that. That would make sense. There are a lot of big chunks of Canadian land where nobody lives. I'd be cool with saying that. 
Yeah, basically, there's no permanent inhabitants there. As I think it's the what the to be to be to be precise, like yeah. So I, yeah, so Devon Island Island is the world's largest island that has no permanent inhabitants. That's what you're what like. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Often referred to as uninhabited, but yeah, a more precise way would be no permanent population, because you know someone might be visiting there as we speak right now. Who knows? But yes, that's correct. Daniel stolen from again. All right, Dan, now Daniel and Lindsay to steal from Eugene. So here's a question. Didius Julianus became Roman emperor in AD 193. That is not unusual. Indeed, AD 193 is known as the year of the five emperors. What is unusual is how he became emperor. In fact, no Roman emperor before or after him gained the throne in this way. So broadly speaking, how did Didius Julianus become emperor? Uh... Oh, AD. I was trying to figure out how AD 193 was a year. That's where we're at right now with my knowledge of any of this. Yeah. Okay. So I'm trying to think of <laughs> Roman emperors is one of those things that I keep meaning to study and get really good at and never do. Same. Um, yeah. <laughs> Would have come in handy right about now. Cool. Yeah. Um, that'd be really, it'd be really helpful. Really helpful to have done that work before this, huh? Well, um, let's, let's approach let's, this then. Let's start. How does let's one start, become emperor? How do, exactly. How does, how would one become emperor? So, murdering um, someone. Obviously murdering someone, that's out. Um, yeah. Dad dies, out. For some reason, I really want to say volunteered, but I feel like a lot of people would volunteer to be emperor and it wouldn't necessarily be unique. <laughs> could he have bought his way into the job? I don't hate that. Or could he have won some kind of gladiatorial won a, won a reality, Won a reality show. Yeah, <laughs> won a competition. <laughs> um, I, I don't. I don't emperors. hate. The, I don't. I don't hate the bot thing, right? Like, haven't there been? Haven't there been like a couple of popes that did that? Yeah, I mean, and just sort of, just sort of like rolled up. The one percent rolled up with, with like a, a wheelbarrow full of doubloons and get your pope yeah. down. Especially if it's the year of the five emperors, someone got tired of it, didn't realize what it, what what the job was. Did he? Julianus <laughs> rolls up with a barrel full of money. Is like, I'll do it, and he gets it. I don't know. I mean, I have, I like your idea. I, I'm, I'm, I'm totally happy to go with that. I, I can't think of like, it's either going to be, it's not going to be like a normal line of succession kind of thing, right? No, absolutely it's not, not. Even, not even going to be like somebody abdicated. It's going to be something like that. Nobody died, I think is what we have to determine here. I think that's fair to In say. Anyway. It's fair to say that nobody died, right? Because yeah. there would be some sort of lineal transition. Unfortunately, in ancient Rome, somebody dying and then someone the else going emperor is very normal. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Let's go with it. All right. He bought his way into the position or something similarly phrased. Yeah, and I, I'm glad I, I put my hand over my face before you mentioned that. So I know my reaction didn't give anything away. And I think Eugene also did a pretty good job holding a broker face or a bridge face. <laughs> but yeah, that is, that is yes. absolutely correct. Yes. But the guy he the guy he succeeded did die. The Praetorian Guard killed him, and they were looking for someone else to sell the throne to. We were right. Nice. We were right. You were correct. Yeah. You were correct. Hey. You got to steal. Congratulations. <laughs> I'll take it. All right, and yeah, this is Daniel's first point since the three hours round. So good to see him joining the rest of you on the scoreboard. And your bonus, Eugene. So basically, I mean, I'm pretty sure you know this based on what you just said, but. Who was the predecessor whose assassination set off the turmoil that led to 193 becoming the year of five emperors? Well, his immediate predecessor was Pertinax. He was, I believe, a Praetorian guard, guardsman of some sort. And the guy before, the guy he was 
the guy Pertinax is dating was Commodus, who we know from Gladiator. He's the guy who got strangled by some wrestler or something in his bath or something like that. And then they gave the, they gave the throne to Pertinax, and he was just such a strict disciplinarian that they revolted under him and, and cut it off his head or something like that. <laughs> and that's why they offered the throne to Didius Julianus. Yeah, so his predecessor was Pertinax. Yeah, that's all I was looking for. Right. But Commodus uh, is a lot more famous. So. Right. Yeah. Because of Joaquin Phoenix's portrayal. And I believe Christopher Plummer also portrayed him in the movie. All right, and the final question of this round before they take a step up in difficulty. Eugene and Daniel to steal from Lindsay. Sleepwalkers was Stephen King's first original horror screenplay not based on any prior material. But for many viewers, its most memorable scene turned out to not contain any blood or gory special effects or indeed any horror at all. That scene in which a pretty female character innocently lip syncs and dances to the contours classic, Do You Love Me, while sweeping up at her job, terrified no one, but did launch a thousand crushes on which Twin Peaks actress? Um, what's her name? Oh, that's horrible that I can't think of it. Who was the actor? Lara, Lara Flynn Boyle, right? That sounds like rings a bell. I, she in Twin Peaks? I don't know. Okay, so sorry, but who was the actor in Twin Peaks? Kyle MacLachlan. Kyle MacLachlan, okay. Does that ring a bell, Kyle MacLachlan and Lara Flynn Boyle? Yeah. Okay, I mean, I TV is also not a strong suit of mine either, so sorry. She, no, was she in, I can't remember. I can't remember if she was in Twin Peaks. I haven't seen it in 20 years. Durr. All I know is Laura Palmer. Right. And that's, and that's the name of a character, not the that's, actress. And the, the wrong character. I mean, not the lead character, obviously. Just the murder. Likely. Victim. Uh, likely. Do you think Laura Palmer might have gotten you to Lara Flynn Boyle? Or, I mean... Yeah, I mean, Lara Flynn Boyle is not Laura Palmer. Yeah, I know. I know. I know it's not Laura Palmer. I'm just saying, is that why you associate an actress with a name similar to Laura Palmer and with Twin Peaks? Or should we be going? Like, are there any other actress who might be a candidate to be Kyle McLaughlin's co-star? I'm just trying. To, I'm trying to remember both Twin. Both. Okay, well, let's see. I'm trying to remember Sleepwalkers. Sleepwalkers. Which I think I've seen. Oh man. Wait. Why does a Oh, okay, I see. No, no, he's basically saying that the Twin Peaks actress is the pretty female character who lip syncs and dances. Okay. I don't know. Launch a thousand, hold on a second. Launch a thousand crushes. That is terminology that is, you know, from Christopher Marlowe, right? Helen, 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 right. Helen something. Helen of Troy, yes. Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium? Well, right, right. So I'm just wondering if he was, if that's a hint. So far he hasn't been giving hints, but you know, if this were like a. That's a pretty big hint. But, yeah, I mean, you know, I okay, I mean, it's probably not that. I mean, I don't know Yogesh's style for question writing. So far, he hasn't been big on the hints. So, like, you know, you guys were going after Pulaski, and that would the Polish was just complete, you know, red herring there. So, I right. mean, you know, it doesn't have to be that. So, but could it be something? Does, does the word Helen mean anything to you? Like Helen Hunt, Helen? On a bottom Carter, but it's not her. Yeah, no, no, it's obviously not her. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Ugh, I don't know. Really, uh, I think we're going to have to go with you because I, I mean, if Lara Flynn Boyle is the best we got, but I mean, uh, I don't, I, I don't know why it came to mind, but you want to go with it? Yeah. All right. We'll go, we'll go Lara Flynn Boyle. The good news is that Lara Flynn Boyle was on Twin Peaks. He was, her role was recast in that firewalk with me. The bad news is that she's not the correct answer to this question. Okay. Well, I, th- I thought she was at least. That's that. a good guess then. Good yeah. guess. Good, definitely a good guess. Yeah. Lindsay? So let me tell you something about Stephen King. I'm very burnt out on Stephen King working in a library. Everyone loves Stephen King. It's all anyone asks for. But I have seen Sleepwalkers, like I've seen every other Stephen King movie at some point. And I have seen Twin Peaks, although I'm not super familiar with it. 
My first instinct was Madgen Amick, who is the also now the mom on Riverdale. But I think the answer is actually Sherilyn Fenn. So that's that what you're locking in? Yes, Sherilyn Fenn. Right, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, when Twin Peaks came out, those were sort of the three kind of um, starlet types who were launched by it, Sherilyn Fenn, yeah. uh, uh, Lara Flynn Boyle, and I had, to, I had to look up several times how to pronounce her name. Madgen Amick, apparently. Okay, I, I've never heard it pronounced. I've only seen it written, so... Yeah, both the both of the A's are long, long A's apparently, and certainly you know all three were launched to fame. Sherilyn Fenn was maybe the biggest sex symbol to come out of that show, but the answer here is Major Nami. Dang it! Oh, that's tough. Tough. It's been a long that's... time since I've seen Sleepwalkers. I'm okay with getting that one wrong. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we uh, we end the round with Daniel two point two, Eugene seven point one, Lindsay eight point zero. A very narrow lead, but it doesn't mean all that much this early because the point values will keep going up. So in the next round, the questions are slightly harder, and they will be worth four points as a steal and three points as a specialist. And we'll begin with Eugene and Lindsay to steal from Daniel. I need to take a quick break before we do so. Okay. I'll be right back. Also, how many rounds are there? Well, I mean, three of them. So this, the one just now technically was the second one, so there'll be two more after this. Two more, two more regular rounds, right. And what are the score score values for the final round? There'll be like six points for a steal, five points for specialist, and three points for a bonus. And uh, bonuses are awarded when uh, only on a steal. Yeah, got it. Yeah, I'm pretty extreme with my knowledge. I either know something really well or not not, not at all. So, <laughs> but uh... yeah, so you're kind of simultaneously you're you know advantaged on your own specialist questions and disadvantaged on the other. Luckily, I have good teammates. Yeah, that dynamic can produce a lot of really interesting fluctuations. Yeah, this is really fun. All right, thank you. All right, we're ready to continue? Yeah. Yes. Uh, Eugene and Lindsay now to steal from Daniel. Here's your question. The 2010 film Patagonia, featuring the singer Duffy in a supporting role, centers on a real-life Argentine settlement with a name that translates into English as The Colony. What, in real life, is most strikingly unexpected or unusual about that settlement? The Colony. Okay, assuming this is a real-life Argentine settlement, it's got to have a name. I speak Spanish and I still couldn't directly translate that. La Colonia or something along those lines, I'm assuming. You but know that doesn't ring a bell for me. Do you know what Usha Aya is, translates to in in Spanish? Usha Aya? Yeah, like U-S-H-A-I-A, something like that. It's like the southernmost city in the world, but that's the, that's my knowledge of no, Argentine I, I can't directly translate. That doesn't sound directly Spanish to me, okay. and I also could just be completely wrong. Um, It could be I, I haven't taken a Spanish class in long enough to have my skills quite sharp on that. It was strikingly unexpected or unusual. So I have an incredibly biased instinct on this. Um, being that my last name is Goldstein, I was raised Jewish. I know a lot about Jewish history. There is a very high concentration of Argentinian Jews. And it's unusual for the area. They're like the only large Jewish area, I believe in South America. Correct me if I'm wrong. But my mind immediately goes to is this like a Jewish settlement but again I don't have enough to back that up other than like I've heard of that and I'm Jewish so my answers tend to lean that sometimes when I don't know things the thing um, is I just that's that's all I know about Argentine cities unusual Argentine cities and I think the Jewish connection is a lot better than this most southernmost city in the world connection because that's not strikingly unexpected or unusual that's just a uh geography trivia you know i mean so, it's, it's unusual that it, it would be the southernmost settlement in the world but but yeah i mean not strikingly i mean you expect a city in argentina or chile or you know to be 
the southernmost city in the world. And there's actually a Chile, city in Chile that, that fights with Ushaya for that recognition. So, but anyway, so I am very happy to go with you with the Jewish angle, unless we can think of anything else. Because, you know, it is, it is very unexpected to see a lot of Jews. I did not know what you said about Argentine Jews. Yeah, there's a, a family friend of ours, Argentinian origin, Jewish, and it's really interesting to hear about kind of how the culture differs there. Well, and the it's I've educated the viewers about the fact that there are Argentinian Jews, so we'll go with it. It's a yeah. Jewish settlement. Jewish settlement. Okay, yeah. I mean, there. I think. Um, I think. Yeah, Ladino is the specific dialect that sort of developed there, out of kind of Spanish and Hebrew and so on. Ladino, yeah. Yeah, it was a, a plot point in a Law and Order Criminal Intent episode. Actually, speaking <laughs> of people named Eames. Daniel. I've I've heard of this. I'm pretty sure, and it, it would help to know if you know Duffy's nationality. She is Welsh. And I believe that oh. the, there, there's a Welsh colony in Argentina where Welsh is spoken, which was my answer. Yeah, so this being the second round, I can't quite be as generous as I was before. Which is, I mean, you were certain, uh, Eugene and Lindsay, you were on the right track with a specific ethnicity having a, a settlement you wouldn't expect. But I, I needed the actual ethnicity, which Daniel provided. It's Welsh. Fair. Uh, very different. No, that's awesome. That's cool. I did not know that. Yeah. Duffy and uh, Matthew Reese, who starred in that movie as well, is also Welsh. All right. I've never heard of Duffy, so I had no chance. So. All right. I'll make come back now. Next question has kind of a, a long quote in it. In 2011, a writer named Jeff Rauner, his name isn't important, irreverently described the 1707 death of Jeremiah Clark thusly. By all accounts, Clark was a melancholy little man prone to depression and being just a wee bit melodramatic. He fell madly in love with one of his female students, a young lady of much higher social rank than he. Since this was the 18th century and not the 21st, she politely but firmly refused his offer instead of getting 11 other musicians to vie against him for her hand in a reality show. Clark was crushed and decided to kill himself. The problem was he couldn't make up his mind on how to do it. He saw his choices as either hanging himself or drowning himself. Hanging is quick and fairly painless. On the other hand, you poop yourself and even for the dead, that's embarrassing. Drowning is pretty traditional for the lovesick, but it's harder than it looks. Fraught with indecision, Clark flipped a coin. To his surprise, it stuck on its edge in the mud, rendering choice impossible. Feeling the hand of fate on his shoulder, telling him that life is not worth throwing away, he got some help, recovered, and went on to a brilliant long career as a famous composer. Ha ha, no. He took the coin toss as a sign that he totally left out the best way to kill himself and shot himself in the head in the churchyard at St. Paul's Cathedral. Princess Diana basically walked over the same place he put a bullet in his brain in an act of desperate sadness and loneliness to have a fairy tale wedding while Clark's song played all around. It's the end of the quote. So aside from his manner of death, Clark is remembered today for exactly one composition, the Prince of Denmark's March, commonly referred to as Trumpet Voluntary, and heard everywhere from Charles and Diana's wedding to the Colbert Report's Colbert Platinum segment to the closing seconds of Tub Thumping by Chumbawamba. However, despite the title, Trumpet Voluntary, and despite the fact it's generally heard in an arrangement by Sir Henry Wood that gives the melody to the trumpet, Clark's piece was in fact a voluntary, and like all pieces with that name, was meant to be played on which instrument. Both Clark and his contemporary, Dietrich Buxtehuda, were professional performers of this instrument. I have so many thoughts and questions. I have a lot of questions here. Oh my God. Okay, so where do we even start? I don't know why it's not letting me paste. In, huh? 
for some okay. reason. Maybe it's too maybe it's too large. <laughs> yeah, that's possible. I'll try pasting it in section. Okay, yeah. so, so 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 like the relevant part of that question is is the voluntary thing, right? Yeah, we need to figure out what instrument that is in reference to. So let's think about this for a second. Like if you think about volunteers, like fife and drum corps, that kind of thing, that's that's sort of where my mind is going right now. Oh right? like military instruments. Mm-hmm. Bag, bagpipes maybe that would make sense yeah i i like any of those answers and that's a really interesting way a volunteer corps would be a really interesting way to frame that i didn't even think of that i was more on the page of ruling out traditional wedding instruments if that's not what it's meant to be played on so i was like so it's not a string quartet instrument nor is it a piano so there's so 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 bagpipes here's 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 some thoughts regarding bagpipes right I'm trying to think of what the closing seconds of that Chumbawamba song sound like. They could have bagpipes in them. It wouldn't shock me. Me um, neither. <laughs> I, accidentally, I, I accidentally posted the bonus as well. Luckily, it doesn't give away the answer. So. No, it's fine. Okay. Okay. Gives a melody to the trumpet. So the bagpipes are, uh, you know, uh, the, the bagpipes have a drone, right? Is, is what one of, the, one of the pipes is called. Mm-hmm. And like, there are melody pipes as well. This is true. I'm also thinking about, um, so Jeremiah Clark is a fairly Anglican, you know, doesn't really give a whole lot of ideas of where he might be from other than like English speaking countries. Dietrich Buxtehude, if that's how I'm pronouncing, I'd probably butchering that, sounds a lot more German. Sounds pretty German, yeah. Yeah, and this was in 1707. What instruments were popular in Germany in seven, was, were there back, would bagpipes have been something he might have played i don't know it wouldn't shock me just because i can see like a context for them being played in military bands in like royal processions and things like that and there's obviously enough crossover between the royal houses of various countries that like you know king whatever might have been the king of denmark as well or you know, you know what i'm saying like the cross-pollination yeah. of various uh royal, royal lineages and traditions I really year. like it. I'm just I'm I'm basically trying to punch holes in it to make sure it's so much. It makes a lot of sense though. And it's but it's it it feels really I don't hate the answer. I, I it feels really superficial because I'm just sort of spinning off of this this voluntary volunteer military, you know, fife and drum thing, whatever. But like I mean, we just also have to think of if it's if the melody is then played by a trumpet. Would a bagpipe melody translate to the musical range of a trumpet? I, which is not an answer. I, I was a singer. I don't know how instruments work other than the piano. So, so does it translate? Like, is that same, excuse me, is the melody range of a trumpet accessible on a bagpipe or vice versa? Or was it? Then- oh, I, have, I, have, I, have, I have no idea. Okay. Because um, if, if it was able to be transposed to a trumpet, it's possible they transposed it to a different key, but it's also more likely that it, was just able to be moved to a different instrument. I do like the idea of bagpipes because you can kind of carry multiple notes on that. Right. Um, I'm, I'm cool with saying that. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I, and again, like, like I said, I'm I'm I think I'm where you are now. to try to punch holes in it too. I'm trying to I'm trying to think about the end of the Chumbawamba song, which like it, no, it, but it, it interpolates Danny Boy. So like you're right. I didn't even think about which bagpipes make the pipes. The pipes are calling. That's bagpipes. Yeah. You wanna go? Let's with it? go with it. Okay, we'll say the bagpipes. All right, interesting guess. Eugene, what do you think? <laughs> I think you're pretty close with pipes, but it's not bagpipes, I don't think is the right answer. Um, actually, 
I was sort of I don't I did not know this off the top of my head either. All I know about Clark is that he composed the trumpet voluntary. He's a pretty obscure one 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 hit composer. And <clears throat> but when you mentioned Dietrich Buxtehude, I recently got a trivia question about him, <laughs> and I learned that J.S. Bach traveled several days to hear Buxtehude perform on an instrument that was the pipe organ. So I'm going to say he's the answer is the pipe organ. Yeah, I don't know I, it for sure, but I guess it's my guess. Right. Yeah, you're right. Clark was a one-hit wonder, and actually for a long time a zero-hit wonder because apparently the the piece was long attributed to Henry Purcell, who's much more famous. Still. For whatever reason, I guess it was decided that Clark was the actual composer. But yeah, the confusing thing about calling it trumpet voluntary is that apparently a trumpet voluntary, that refers to the stop on the organ that it's used to play, not to the actual instrument. Um, okay. But yeah, it is the organ is correct. We were close. We were close. <laughs> yeah, you were close. <laughs> All right. Now, uh, Eugene and Daniel to steal from Lindsay. Character actress Lynn Shea made several appearances in the movies of Walter Hill and the Fairley Brothers before finally, in her 70s, getting her first lead roles in 2015's Insidious Chapter 3 and 2018's Insidious The Final Key. However, her association with the horror genre goes back at least to the 1980s when she appeared in such movies as Alone in the Dark, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and Critters all of which were distributed by what company founded by her brother, Bob Shea? So I'm guessing the theme here is horror. Is Orion or Carol Co? I don't know anything about film production companies or so, horror so Ari- it, 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 I, uh, mm. Sorry. So, no, no, it's it's Carol Co, which is the one I'm, I'm, I'm leaning towards. Orion, Orion was a little bit kind of more mainstream. They, they both went out of business around the eight, in late 80s, early 90s, maybe. But they, they did a lot of genre films, a lot of horror films. Carol Co. did a lot of like real genre films. And I mean, Critters was a ripoff. Nightmare on Elm Street is the, the one that gives me pause. But I, I, Carol Co. is still, I think, hmm. I'm just watching Lindsay's face <laughs> to see whether we, we whether you say something that triggers it. <laughs> okay. One of those ones where it's like I'm really sure that it's either it's either it, it, I'm I'm basically giving her the coin flip here. Like I mean, if if I I've, I've said I've said the two that I think it could be, unless it's something totally different. And there is a third option I'm not going to name now that I realize the dangerous game I'm playing that's potential as well. But I want to say Carol Co. I know zero distributor companies so it's not like i don't even like mama mia i knew one so here i know zero not like any of the real trashy direct to vhs ones it's not it's not it's not like canon films or anything but but i I feel like it could be carol co that's your best guess then i'm happy to go along with it all right we'll say carol co all right that's a good guess from the right era Ah. (laughs) (laughs) we know what that means So I should preface this by the fact that I'm a naturally smiley person. So I'm trying to cover my mouth just so I don't give you ideas one way or the other. I love movies. I love actors. I love production. I never know the names of production companies. So I'm going to hope that you gave me a tip here and say Orion. <laughs> I got uh, a yeah, decent guess. I think, yeah. I mean, Canon, although despite his reputation, he did actually distribute a few, I think, good movies like Runaway Train from that era. But this is actually a company that originated, originally specialized in horror, and then suddenly became very successful in the early 21st century when it, I believe it distributed the Lord of the Rings movies. It's called New Line. New Line, yeah. That was, oh. So that was, a, that was the third one, and that's why I didn't say it. Oh, gosh. I, 
when it comes to horror distributors, I know modern distributors fairly well. So unless it was like Blumhouse, I wasn't going to have yeah. anything or like Twisted Pictures or any of those. Yeah. Yeah, sure. something, like, something, something about something about like like Carol Co. I, I remember I remember not long ago looking at like the Carol Co. filmography, and it's it's just so many like one and a half star early '90s action movies and horror movies. Like it just it's it's they're all fantastic, right? Like I've, I've seen I love them all. It. <laughs> it's like if you ever wanted to see like Dolph Lundgren in the fourth version of something, that was what Carol Co. was for. Excellent. Yes, I do always. <laughs> One of my potential topics, I think, was Lord of the Rings. I'm not sure, but if he had mentioned that it was like a, the distribution company of the Lord of the Rings, I well, might have, I would have got that. it. <laughs> yes, of course, but unfortunately, nope. Yeah, I'm sure you didn't. You didn't do the deep dive into how that company first got established. All right, That's um, so funny. Eugene and Lindsay to steal from Daniel, the highest scoring NBA game of all time which saw the Detroit Pistons rack up 184 points across regulation plus three overtimes and still lose, took place on December 13th, 1983, in which city now demolished McNichol Sports Arena? That same stadium also hosted both of the two highest-scoring non-overtime NBA games of all time. Well, my, I know your sports is, is sports is sort of your poison pill. Um, I'm, I, I was not born yet when this happened. I have no idea. I do not know. <laughs> well, I mean, I know a lot of sports trivia about things that happened before I was born. But unfortunately, Fair. it's mostly baseball and football, not basketball, which is my least favorite big, well, I mean, my least knowledgeable big four sport, I guess. Yeah, unless uh, it's figure skating, my knowledge of sports means I had to be alive to witness it. I have to have a news article I read about it. So, yeah, I, I'm going to see if there's another way into this. Uh, McNichols, McNichols Sports Arena. I wish it were no, a brand name stadium because that would be so much more helpful. I can place where brands are from, but McNichols could be anywhere to me. It's not Detroit. Let's rule that out. Not Detroit. Yes, it's not Detroit. I'm, I'm, Great. I think it's like the Silver Dome. <laughs> or also something. trying to uh, think of the palace, the palace at Auburn Hills or something like that. Anyway, whatever. Um, I'm also trying to figure out, and this is me just being an amateur psychologist. Apologies to Yogesh for insulting his profession. What teens Daniel might be a fan of if this is his category? Oh, no, no. Let's think about the theme. The previous one was Wait, about sorry. was about it sports, right? About, broad. Yeah. So I think he just yeah. went with sports. So that's why he asked. That's why Yogesh asked about you know field hockey. Wait a minute, field hockey. Uh, no. Well, yeah. So I guess it was just general sports. Guess, so. <laughs> yeah. I guess it was just general sports, perhaps for him. Then. Yeah. Your your guess is as good as mine, by the way, because I don't yeah. remember. So yeah. Rack up one hundred four points. Case to lose took place on. Nineteen eighty three in. I'm now so either either this team the team in this city relocated to another city or to another arena with a different name yeah another like you know with another different name so yeah it's this, fairly common but I'm it, thinking, they could have moved i'm also yeah, trying to think right. of which teams back in the 80s would have been the highest scoring just from like what i've heard I don't the lakers know. the lakers the, the celtics i mean those are the big like bird versus yeah, it's, it's bird, too early bird for versus the bulls. I can tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's too early for the bulls. Lakers and Celtics both make sense. Texas isn't really good at basketball, as far as I understand. Um, no, no, no. San Antonio Spurs and Dallas Mavericks, but not in eighties though. Yes, okay. Eighties, okay. Yeah. So um, uh, yeah. I'm trying to also uh, yeah that. I mean, yeah. I my instinct was Celtics. McNichols sounds Irish. Boston is an Irish city. Celtics lots of links there but again that's me drawing at whatever straws i possibly can so 
<laughs> then again, I drew at straws as he's bought his way into the position. Oh. And we were right, so. <laughs> yeah, I. It just doesn't sound like Boston to me. I mean, I, okay. I'm. I, I think. Uh, wait, let's see. The Knicks play at Madison Square Garden. I think. Where do the Celtics, the Celtics play? Sorry, I'm, 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 I used to I talk more about Celtic. Celtic. Too. You're fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not a basketball fan, as you can see. <laughs> um, yeah. The Celtics, where do they play again? Could not tell you. I'm sure it has a brand name. <sighs> uh, no, no, no. I know it has that really nice floor that I always really like when I see it on TV. Green floor? It's like nice parquet floor. It's okay. really great. But I don't know what it's called. <laughs> um, I'm not a fan of basketball. Sorry. Okay. Um, I think, and I think, honestly, there's no room in LA to demolish an entire sports or there eh, could be. It's probably not LA because I grew up in Southern California in the eighties. So I so think I would know. have heard okay. it. I, I, I would have heard of it. I think, I mean, I didn't grow up it's in LA, Chicago, but I grew up in San Diego. Yeah. So yeah. So uh, it's not Chicago. They've been playing at the United center forever. It's not always been the United center, but it's not with Nichols arena. I'm sort of thinking um, Philadelphia possibly because, you know, it's like an old city so that, you know, the older cities tend to demolish their arenas over time. This is and true, and Philly's arenas are more spread out, but that could make sense. Also, the 76ers haven't anything. moved anywhere since, yeah, so. But they could have gone to a nicer stadium. And they could have. Again, I'm totally. Yeah, I, I, maybe, I think I should take the lead on one. <laughs> just for now, because, and, and, and uh, right now, I'm just going to go Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll, let's go Philadelphia. 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 All right, good guess, but not correct. Okay. Daniel? So, yeah, you kind of need to know a little bit about the early 80s NBA for this one, because I don't, I don't think that stadium has been around since probably the early 90s. But Paul Westhead, who was the coach of this team, had a, the seven seconds or less offense, and they had some of the incredible scoring records, especially for the era of the NBA, which was pretty low scoring. And this is the Denver Nuggets. This was in Denver. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the big scores were Alex English and... Fat uh, Lieber was on that team, I believe. And... Uh, well, they have like Eastern versus Western conferences. So like, okay, well, I guess they traveled. Yeah. All right. All right. Daniel and Linda. Good job, Daniel. And now Daniel and Lindsay to steal from Eugene. Yep. The end of Pax Romana coincided with an epidemic of an unknown disease that claimed the lives of some five to 10 million Romans, including co-emperor Lucius Verus. This disease is today generally referred to as the blank plague, where what proper adjective, also the name of the dynasty to which Lucius Verus belonged, fills in that blank. Note that this term derives from the name of the chronologically fourth of the so-called five good emperors. Okay. We still have not learned about emperors since the last time we answered a question. Well, no, but I can, I, can, I, can name a few, <laughs> I can name a few of the five good emperors, at least. So there's Okay, that's good. That's more than I can do. There's Trajan and Hadrian. Those are the two big ones. There's Nerva, I believe is one of them. I think he was last. And now you have Didius Julianus. And Lucius Ferris. What dynasty was Lucius? I don't think it was Justinian yet. I'm super unfamiliar with the names of Roman dynasties. I so okay, so so like I know I know so Nerva, I believe, is one of the five good emperors. I know there's a dynasty called the Nerva Antonine dynasty. And that might work here. Yeah. I've never, I mean, heard, I've I've never heard of the Nerva that. Antonine plague, but I've certainly heard of the other two. And I and I know for a fact that like I mean the Antonine plague sounds like a this is such a weird thing to say. It sounds like a plausible plague. Right. I'm just, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm blanking, I feel like we know I'm, things about plagues. I'm blanking on, on a couple of the, sorry, not to, I, I don't mean to talk over you here. What no, were you you're saying? fine. I was saying it, you'd think I would, I would have better idea. I would uh, somewhat an idea of what a plague sounds like. I don't know. I'm 
I'm rambling. Please talk over me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think so. I, I think I think the, the the challenging part of this question here is that it's not a plague that we've heard of, right? So there's yeah, there's going to be not black. It's not bubonic. It's not right. Yeah. Exactly. You've, you've got to you've got to back solve it through the emperor part, and and I feel like this is going to be pretty easy for Eugene because I certainly the five the five good emperors I I can name a few of them. That's more than I can do for some other areas in Roman history, which is not something I. I really know much about so the question is which one and how do we adjective well, so, that into a dynasty name right so i know so again i know that i know that i know that the nerva Einstein dynasty the emperor nerva who i believe was either the fourth or fifth of the five good emperors okay want to go with it i mean i yeah I let's do it nerva yeah okay we'll say the nerva Antonine plague keep quiet about that and pass it to eugene all right so I have never heard of it as called as the Nerva Antonine Plague. I have only heard of it as, but you're very, very close. The five good emperors are first Nerva. Uh, sure. First was Nerva, yes. Second was Trajan. Right, Trajan. He was a very old man, and he, he, he decided to pick his successor. Uh, so Nerva went from like 96 to 98, and then Trajan reigned from 98 to 117. Then Hadrian was Trajan's handpicked successor, successor right. because Trajan had no sons. So, and Hadrian was also a very good emperor as well. Notice that, notice that picking an emperor was a lot better than having a son succeed. So uh, Hadrian ruled from like 117 to I think 131-ish. And when he died, he also had no sons, probably because he was homosexual. And uh, he also picked his successor, the fourth emperor, whose name was Antoninus Pius. Ah. And so the plague, which came near the end of this dynasty, was named after Antony. It was the Antonine Plague. Fuck! If we hadn't right. said Nerva. Yeah. I'm, I've, I, I, I don't know saying anything because I'm not sure. I'm still not sure actually how to, how to uh, evaluate. Yeah, because um, you did get like the key part, which was, and you did say Antonine. You just added a word. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Eugene, what do you think? How should I score that? Honestly, I've, I mean, I've never heard of it as Nerva Antonine. I've, I've always, I mean, I, I don't know how strict you want to be. They definitely knew that Antonine was there, right? So right. the question that's, is, that's you, you, it's up to your podcast, mean, right? Yeah, it is my podcast. It is my call, ultimately. I was just asking for yeah. confidence. Uh, so if, you're, if, you're, if you want to be literally correct, I've never heard it called the Nerva Antonine Plague. It's always the Antonine Plague. Yeah, that, that's right. It is definitely not called the Nerva Antonine Plague. I just was so impressed by how they would see. Yes, I was off. very impressed that they pulled it out the Lord Antonine. So I could go either way on this either. I mean, it's ultimately up to you, I think. Yeah, yeah. Half points for half the answer being right. <laughs> uh, I would understand if you didn't want to give it to us just because if it's like yeah, if you say that the wrong I mean, first name, then the whole name yeah. is wrong kind of deal. It did, it did, it did occur to me that, that the, the hyphenate name would sound a little awkward as the, as, a, as the descriptor of a plague versus a dynasty, but Right. And the thing about, because, I mean, Nerva Antonine describes the extended dynasty, but right. like that started with Antoninus Pius is kind of the Antonine part. But I think because the question was, did basically ask for the name of the dynasty to which Lucius Verus belonged. And technically he did belong, right? This, that's right, Eugene. Technically he could say he belonged to the Nerva Antonine dynasty, right? That is correct. Okay, then yeah, I'll give credit to Lindsay and Daniel. Okay. Hey. Do I get a bonus then? Yeah. Uh, you will get a bonus, yes. Okay. It's a little less directly related to Roman emperors, but here it is. Nope. The Antonine Plague is thought to have been transmitted by Roman soldiers returning from a siege of what Mesopotamian city on the Tigris River? 
This city originated as the capital of a namesake empire that was in turn named for its founder, who is a member of the Diadochi, the four main successors to Alexander the Great. And because I was generous to them, I'll also be generous to you. You, you don't have to name the city exactly. If you name the, the empire or the founder of the empire, I'll, you'll get credit. Okay. Can you paste it, though? Because I'm, I, I'm going to need to look at this. I'm not, I don't know this off the top of my head. Sorry. What? Mesopotamian city on the Tigris River. This city originated as the capital of a namesake empire that was in turn named for its founder. Okay. I see. So which empire are we talking about here? Um, so there's the Sassanid Empire. There's the... I mean, the Parthians were a little earlier, I think. And then there's... um. Oh gosh, what's his name? The Seleucid Dynasty? Hmm. This city originated as the capital of a namesake empire. The Seleucids. Um, yeah, I know like Antipater, I think, was one of those Alexander's generals. I'm not sure. I'm more a fan of Roman history than Greek. Um, <laughs> let's see. I think Sassanid is more in the time period, but I think Seleucid is more fitting of what you're asking here. So, the city itself. Siege of what Mesopotamian city? I mean, I know some cities in the area like Ctesiphon and Persepolis. Well, Persepolis is not really that, but none of them really seem. Oh, it originated the capital. Okay, so it's not necessarily related to the name of the dynasty. I mean, of the empire. Um, do I want to go with Ctesiphon? Hmm. Namesake empire. So again, kind of indicating that the the city, the empire. Oh, the, oh, oh, the city empire. They're, they're named after each other. So yeah. Okay. Uh oh. Okay. Um. I can't think of any cities that fit the names of the empire, but maybe there was an obscure city named Seleucid or something like that, or uh, or Sassanid, uh, you know? So I guess I'll go with the name of the empire. Wow, this is really tough. Uh, it's because it's not really about Roman emperors. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go with Seleucid. Yeah, so as I said, I would accept any any variant on that. But the city that the play came from was called Seleucia. The empire was the Seleucid. The founder was Seleucus. Uh, any of Ooh. Them. Ooh. Okay. All right. Good job. Uh, Eugene and Daniel Nottisville from Lindsay. The first time I heard about Everything, Everything, and The Sun is Also a Star, author Nicola Yoon, I assumed that, like fellow YA sensation Jenny Han, she was an American of Korean descent, just based on her name. However, it turns out the surname Yoon actually derives from her husband. So in fact, like the family at risk of deportation in The Sun is Also a Star, Yoon originally comes from what Western Hemisphere nation? All right. So I mean, Western Hemisphere nation. Okay. You can you can you can pretty much I think narrow this down to like a handful of Central American countries fairly easily. I, I don't know how much I don't know how much more narrow you can get, right? Why but Central like, America? Why not South America? Because I know, like for example, like Japanese Central, Japanese go to South sure, America. So sure. Like, South, South South America too, I guess. Okay. Um, kind of kind of a. I mean, it's it that just sort of expands it a little bit. I, I I guess I guess when I think about topical YA fiction that might be about families at risk of deportation, like so, are we talking about a, a country with political troubles that have deportations, like you know um, Nicaragua or? Well, so maybe, I mean, Western Hemisphere could also be a, a big red herring here too, right? Like, wait, wait, so no, like I'm reading the question again. It says, like the family at risk of deportation. Oh, I see. Okay, you're right. So therefore, this nation had deportation issue. I mean, had had to deport some of its citizens. So, so just to so be I, clear, the, the sun is also a star is set in the United States. So it's a right. family at risk of being deported from the United. Oh, States. oh, I see. I see. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I see. Okay. Right. 
but I mean, basically they're refugees, and then they go back to the yeah. So so there's 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 trouble there. Is well, what I'm trying to say. Not necessarily well, refugees. Well, I guess not. not. I guess they can just be illegal refugees. immigrants. Yeah, that's true. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. right. You can just be an illegal immigrant. Yeah. Well, but yeah, you could you could be, for instance, like the first name again. Not that this not that this matters remotely, but like the first name Nicola makes me think of the UK. Right. That's that's yes. That's yes, a, it's a very British a, name. It's a more common female name in Britain. That's right. Then it would be, say, in a Spanish-speaking country in Central or South America. So we're I looking don't... at we're looking at Belize. We're looking at oh, I like Belize. Guyana. That's a, right. That's a that's a great idea. Yeah, because because you've got you've got the best of both worlds, right? Like but got... I don't think Belize was okay. Yeah, I mean, most people who come from Belize, I think, are legal, right? Because it's such a nice country compared. to... I don't know. It's not. It's not as uh, politically unstable. I thought. So. Well, I mean, it's it's the the train the train of thought here is that the the first name of this author it's 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 is is it's pretty British. Much, pretty pretty much all we have to go on right right so does that indicate something more British than Spanish in origin and I sort of think it does I mean that's the only thread we've got so <laughs> yeah, I don't you mind, come from I, her husband I don't yes. mind I don't mind that Belize answer I really don't. But, I, mean, I mean, there are other British countries in the Western Hemisphere, right? Like, sure, Guyana, I, mean, I think. Guyana, uh, I mean, and then, and then uh, Guyana, I don't know. Yeah. And then um, Bahamas, right? right and then Jamaica. Caribbean, West Indies, et cetera. Jamaica, right? And then. Uh, right. Yeah, that's another, that's, another interesting, that's another interesting idea. It could be Jamaica. Barbados. Is that, I think, I think the, Brit, the British held Barbados last, I think. So, yeah. uh, and, you know, those, those little dinky Caribbean island countries like Antigua and Barbuda. I, I don't know how to pronounce them. I just read them. Could it be? Could it? Could it oh, could say Kits and Nevis, of course. Could it that, be? That, could yeah. it just be? Could it just be Jamaica? Nicola, I mean, I don't know many Jamaicans. I mean, Bob, right? <laughs> but, uh, oh, yeah. No, I'm, 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 again, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm really just spitballing based on on her first name. No, I think it's a really, really good angle. The Britishness um, of it, and and, and right. what what little I know about like Caribbean immigration patterns. I kinda, Do you want to go Jamaica? I kind of like it better than Belize, honestly. Yeah, I like. I I don't think it would be Belize. That that's pretty obscure and not. Yeah. So you're saying we're leading Jamaica then? I think so. Yeah. Okay. I'm happy with that. Okay. We'll say Jamaica. It uh, it took you a, a while to remember that the Caribbean exists, but when you did, you landed on the correct answer. It was Jamaica. Yes. He did. Yes. Good job. <laughs> All right, Eugene and Lindsay to steal from Daniel now. Do I get a bonus? Uh, she no. does. Sorry. Right. What? Yeah, uh, I mean, they're, just, <laughs> they're not evenly distributed, unfortunately. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Eugene and Lindsay to steal from Daniel now. The number one and number two spots on the Billboard Hot 100 chart for the week of November 14th, 1987, were both held by covers of songs originally written or co-written by Richie Cordell and popularized in the late 1960s by Tommy James and the Shondells. So which two artists recorded those covers that were at number one and number two on that week? This must be his pop music general category. Uh, and I'm of no help More here, 80s. <laughs> My weakness. To me, pop culture doesn't exist between about 1942 and like 1991. <laughs> Unless it's horror movies. <laughs> uh, um, Uh-oh. Tommy James and the Shondells, Richie Cordell. This sounds... And, and so interestingly, I'm going to pull... What Danny was saying about like that late '60s sound of like that Motown, almost like maybe Motowny, but not quite. Maybe that Jersey Boys-ish sound. Like, 
and pinpoint it around there because I know that's when uh so 1963 to that I, I think that's about when the Jersey Boys were like the four seasons were a thing because December 1963 was a retrospective song so 19, what would have been big in 1987 to cause covers to shoot to the top of the chart I have a feeling this is tied to movies otherwise it wouldn't be so specifically two covers in the same week at the top of the chart popularized by the same band 1987 Hopkin was 1986 Rain Man was 1988 1987 what was that year I mean, Top Gun, I mean, just what, what are some movies in that time era? Let's see. Was um, there a Bond movie with a Bond theme? No, because Bond themes aren't covers, they're originals. Never mind. Yeah, like Live and Let Die would be an original, right? So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I was about to say No Time to Die is an original. There's there's my reference point for Bond songs is Billie Eilish. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, What's happened? Okay, so let's see. Last Emperor? No, no, Platoon? Uh, earlier. I think Last Emperor Platoon is 86 later. and Last Emperor is 87, right? More or less, uh, yeah. Rain Man's 88, okay. 87. If it was 78, I'd say that they were songs from Greece, but which is now the album going to get stuck on, even though it's completely the wrong year. Oh, my God. Um, I mean, I don't know. I know movies. I don't know music. So, <laughs> but, uh, so I'm just trying to help you with Same, to be quite honest. It's got to be connected to something, though, because, like, yeah, it has to be connected to something. I don't know if it's a movie, but it's connected to something. When was Risky Business? 1982? Uh, no, okay. Because there's a famous song that plays during Risky Business, right? That's Bob Seger, though. Okay, what else? Let's see. Oh, man. Billy Joel does a lot of covers. Could they both be Billy? Oh, there, no. Cause two which artists. Two artists. Are co- so we have to name two. Are they famous? <laughs> duet? Who released a duet album? Someone released a duet album or something? I don't know. Two artists. Could it be Sonny well, no. and Cher? Are we too late? Are we too early? Yeah, are we too late for Sonny and Cher? I have no clue, except I just know they exist. <laughs> I think the show was acting in Moonstruck. Because Moonstruck yeah. was like but Moonstruck in '98. Yeah. yeah, it was on '87, '88. Maybe Moonstruck yeah, has something so to do with these. Yeah, that's not the right era. Yeah. yeah. They weren't releasing their own music around then very right. much, if right. at all. I'm pretty, and weird fact, Sonny Bono was the mayor of Palm Springs by himself, I think, like, less than 10 years after that. So, yeah, that's not right. Yeah, I knew that. I, I came from Southern California, so I knew that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, uh, I feel like I have no clue what to artists. Again, I'm stuck on whether it's two artists and one each recorded one of those. Maybe it's like a tribute album you or if it's like or, a duet yes. situation. I'll just tell you, it's two separate artists I'm looking for. Not okay, so it's not a duet. Cool. That's helpful. Hopefully helpful. <laughs> so that means we have to get two guesses right, which is pretty much impossible. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, oh, man. Okay, let's think about 80s hits. Let's think of 80s, 80s, top one, 80s top one artist, number one art hits, right? Well, so gonna, this is I'm a number gonna, one spot, right? So yeah. Yeah, um, I'm going to put Billy Joel out there because he was late 80s, early 90s, and he does a lot of covers. Okay. So I'm going to say Billy Joel might be a viable answer for, for one what of did he? What did Billy Joel sing? Like Piano Man or something? Or Well, that's Billy Joel, yeah. He, I mean, he did some of his originals, but he also, he's done, a, I think he's done covers. I'm pretty sure New York State of Mind is a cover. Okay. Anyway, Billy Joel is a, but, I mean, is, okay, I mean, they're covers from the 60s. Okay. This is true. So. Who else would have covered stuff in the 60s? <sighs> well, besides Billy Joel. And even that, I don't know. And there's a number two, so. <sighs> Can we go back to the X Factor question again and just say that again and get that right again? That'd be really great. <laughs> Give me TV music questions. Oh, man. I Could it be Elton John? Could it be... Who else was? Could it be Queen or Freddie Mercury? Could it be Paul McCartney? 
November 14th, 1987. Anything important happened around then? Probably not. Sorry, just that's, looking for any angle I can get it. That's, that's a good way to phrase it. Probably. There may have been some kind of, was that like right after a Live Aid or something? I don't know. I thought Live Aid was like 86, but I'm, I'm not sure. Or 85. I, the episode on the Goldbergs dedicated to Live Aid was very vague about the year. That's my reference point for Live Aid. I see. So. <laughs> I don't know anything about Live Aid except it was just this concert to raise money. So yeah. But if you can remember any of the acts at Live Aid, that might that might be you know related. Like uh, all right, late eighties artists. So they had to be solo. So it could have been Springsteen. Could have been McCartney. Uh, McCartney wasn't quite solo yet. Or maybe he was. Could have been McCartney. Springsteen, McCartney, Billy Joel, Elton John. These are the four people that are coming to mind for me. Do we want to pick two of them or do we want to go somewhere else? I don't, I have no clue what's good here or not. I'm just trying to help with the non-music aspects. Well, those those are my four. I don't know how to narrow it down. If there are two that sound good to you, we can go with them. I have no idea. Well, Billy Joel can hear mine first. So I think that's a strong candidate. Billy Joel, one. Uh -huh. And then the other two, of the other three, I go with your gut. My gut. I'm gutless here. <laughs> that's, that's dangerous. Okay. We're going to say Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen. All right. I think, yeah, those are personally both 80s popular artists. It's interesting. You were trying to remember the highest grossing movies of like those mid 80s years. And you said 86, you said correctly, was Top Gun. 88 was Rain Man. Now, the year in between those, it was a movie that didn't have Tom Cruise. It was actually Three Men and a Baby. And the Interesting, one of the main characters, one of the three men, one of the main characters in that is named Peter Mitchell. Peter Mitchell is also the name of Maverick in Top Gun. So, you know, sometimes when looking at things in pop culture, you just find weird coincidences like that that aren't connected. So, you know, you, you I think, were deducing. That is really to fun. I like that. Yeah. I mentioned that in episode 11, which right now is the most recently released one. Yeah. So both of you, I think, were going off the idea that the two songs that were covers of Tommy James and the Shondells by different artists, you know, reaching the top of the charts in November 1987 couldn't possibly be a coincidence. But of course, sometimes it is a coincidence. And that's exactly why questions like, you know, exactly why I ask questions like that because of the coincidence. Yeah, so that, so it, it, yeah, none of that has anything to do with the answer, really. I'm just kind of pointing out how your reasoning, while very logical, kind of went awry. Daniel? Yeah, I was about to turn five years old, so I don't have a lot of first-hand knowledge of this era of the charts but Tommy James and the Shondells their big hit of course was Crimson and Clover not to be confused with the Standells which I always do and their big hit was Dirty Water which was not a hit in the 80s I have a guess the guess is wrong I'm sure but I'm gonna say that for part one I'm gonna say Joan Jett and for part two who I know did Crimson and Clover and, and and for part two I'm gonna say David Lee Roth who did a lot of 60s garage covers but I don't I can't think of one that he had a hit with, which was a Tommy James song, but certainly he did with some others. So Joan Jett and David Lee Roth. All right. So Tommy James and the Shondells, even though not one of the most famous groups in the 60s, had a decent number of hits that are still remembered today. The two that were covered in the 80s that became hits were I Think We're Alone Now and Moni Moni. Yeah. And okay. those were by Tiffany. Billy and Idol and Tiffany. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, so we got one of the two. Billy Idol. Yeah, Billy Idol. Oh, Billy Idol. Idol. Sorry. Billy Idol. Okay, got it. Right, yeah. wrong. A different person than Billy Joel and Billy Irish. I was <laughs> not not thinking pop enough, I guess. All right, Daniel and Lindsay now to steal from Eugene. Although there are a few dissenting theories, the name of the card game Bridge is generally thought to derive from what language? 
the earliest known rule book for bridge written by John Collinson and published in 1886, calls the game blank whist, whist is the predecessor game that bridge kind of descends from. So it calls it blank whist, where the blank is a demonym that also refers to this language. Jeez. 1886. I mean, okay, so whist, there, there, is, a, there is a group of card games called whist, like bid whist is basically, is basically spades. Okay. With, with some extra rules, neither here nor there. So the name Bridge, I mean, etymologically speaking, I'm guessing it comes from a different place than Bridge. So it's probably like a cognate of something. I'm trying to approach this from what nationality John Collinson could be and where he might have pulled. Oh, oh no, I'm, 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 I don't, I don't think that actually has any, any bearing on this at all. I feel, I feel like what's, what? yeah, I, I'm leaning towards like something Middle Eastern. Could be. Um, it could be it could be Arabic of some kind it could be I don't think I will say with my limited experience don't think it's Hebrew we'll laugh if I'm wrong but don't think it is probably not so like I don't think it's French okay poker is French originally but poker is not a trick-taking game which bridge is so in other words there's probably a completely different branch of of the family tree here that's coming at it for a different source and I really wish that I had could it be I'm thinking Collinson sounds almost son and daughter are very Icelandic. Could it be like something up there European? Could it maybe Icelandic. be Dutch? <laughs> um, it could know. be. It could be. It could be Dutch. Also, language be, spoken in Africa in the Middle East sometimes. I think it could be French for that matter. I, I, I yeah. guess French whist sounds like too many other French French demonymic things. French twist, French kiss, all of yeah, that to me. Exactly. Be right. But again, that's me deciding that the name sounds too similar to things which is no reason to actually disqualify it dutch whist makes sense italian um, i don't think it would be italian it might be though because the uh, could it be latin i mean well i mean so 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 the word bridge itself is like pont ponte ponte yeah in in actual yeah rom- romantic languages right pontoon like i said i knew it had something to do with bridges yeah hmm so bridge not meaning an actual bridge. And knowing the game has things like contracts and tricks in it. Oh, man. Something um, like Turkish, maybe? That makes sense. That could work. You want to try that? I don't hate it. Me either. I was, was going to say Farsi, so similar. Okay. I mean, I, I think it's more likely to be Turkish than Farsi. Probably. Given the given the, the demonym, dem, demonic, demonymic nature of this. <laughs> if it was demonic, it would be much more up my alley, let me tell you. Um, yeah. But demonymic is a whole Turkish, different deal. Turkish whist? Turkish whist? Sure. It sounds kind of 19th century, you know? Yeah, let's go for it. All right, we'll say Turkish. All right. Eugene? I think I know this, but I'm not 100%. But I know the name bridge comes from the word birich, and I believe that is Russian. So I think you're in the right area. So I, and Russian whist sort of rings a bell, too. I've, not, I've never read this book, of course. So I'm going to say Russian. All right. And yeah, that's exactly correct. And yeah. that's exactly the origin, Birich, which I forget off the top of my head. what it, It's some kind of official in what bureaucracy, I think. All right. And now the final question of this round, before we move on to the super hard round, we'll go to Eugene and Daniel to try and steal from Lindsay. Several centuries before anyone thought of stringing together a series of pop numbers with a flimsy excuse for a plot and turning it into a hit musical, John Gay wowed 18th century London with pretty much the same idea. That's a quote. It's from the beginning of Rowena Smith's review in The Guardian, which is headlined in part, The Original Jukebox Musical Reimagined, 
of an updated 2018 revival of what 1728 work of musical theater? Two centuries after this work's premiere, a 1928 adaptation of it would introduce a song that, three decades after that, would win the 1960 Record of the Year Grammy Award. Okay. I need to read uh, this. Hold on a sec. I'm starting, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of starting with the end here, right? Yes. 1728 work of musical theater. Are we talking like Moliere or something? Or have there um, been... Well, I mean, Moliere, I think it was a little earlier. I'm not sure. 1600s, I would, I want to say. But um, okay, so let's. So, so, so here's, here's, here's kind of what my thought process is, right? Okay. Like late, late 50s record of the year. Like, where is that coming from? And it's probably coming from some sort of Broadway thing, right? At that point, like, like it's either coming from sure. a very, it's either coming from very early pop music, or it's coming from, you know, like a like a Leonard Bernstein musical of some sort. The first thing, the first thing that immediately came to mind is West Side Story, which is around that. I think it's sixty-two, I, but like I actually think it was nineteen sixty or nineteen sixty-one. Yeah. Okay. So, huh? But that's 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 so that's what I'm thinking, right? Can we find a musical from that era that's based on a play from nineteen twenty-eight that's based or or whatever? Seventeen twenty-eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hang on. So Romeo and Juliet, West Side Story, right? Right. So Romeo and Juliet would have been you know around in seventeen twenty-eight to make a musical theater of work right so and it's updated 2018 revival hmm. yeah that's the other thing i have not watched movies since i had kids for the most part so i don't know anything what happened in 2018 box musical though right so so which 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 west side story is clearly not correct hmm. Hmm. i mean okay like 1728 works of musical theater what are they? What? yeah like what, what could they be john gay so like and a revival i mean it's i mean i know my stuff before 1920 like i said so uh sure. but yeah it's it's uh yeah I'm, I'm i'm having a really hard time approaching it from any angle other than the one i yeah you can approach it from the 1960 angle i have no clue there <laughs> okay, but, but uh so. right like i i don't recognize 1928 adaptation okay hold on so like the cole porter the gershwin brothers they were active in the late twenties, right? It's so like anything goes of the icing. No, let's see. Like showboat or something? That wouldn't be seventeen twenty-eight. No, but Oh, I think an adaptation. Well, was there something that Showboat was adapted from? Showboat was around the late twenties. Mm-hmm. That much I know. Okay. Summertime, Porgy and Bess. Um, just throwing out random musicals I know in that. We're looking for the name of the work of musical theater. From 1728. Oh, we are. That's right. Okay, yeah. Yes. So we do really do need the 1728 thing. Okay. Like in old timey letters, the show hyphen boat. <laughs> no. We are, we are running a little long, so. I okay. All right. We go with it. I mean. I have nothing else. Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> Was it a Romeo? I mean. Uh, you, okay. you, know, you, you whatever, whatever, whatever you think. I, I honestly. Yeah. Okay. Let's just go Romeo and Juliet. All right. I don't know this. I'm sitting here racking my brain from every angle, especially what 2018 revivals were there. But my brain can't comprehend that there was Broadway before the pandemic anymore at all. I'm trying to think of musical works that would have been around in the 1720s, and I'm stuck on Candide. So I'm going to say Candide, even though I don't think it's right. That's a good guess. I see what you were thinking with that. I mean, it was a review in The Guardian, so it would have been referring to the London theater. I know, still. I'm familiar with West End, too. I just can't place it. 
Yeah, so in this case, the 1960 record of the year Grammy for a song that came out in 1959 was by Bobby Darin. It was Mac the Knife, which is... No, of course. Yeah. An English translation of Mackie Messer, a ballad from Brecht and Viles' Penny Opera, which was based on John Gay's The Beggar's Opera. Okay. Ah. So we end that round. Again, fairly close together. Daniel, 16.2. Eugene, 19.1. Lindsay, 12.0. Still anyone's game. The point values now go up to six for a steal, five for a regular specialist question, two for a bonus. And we'll begin with Eugene and Lindsay trying to steal from Daniel. In 2012, in addition to their usual induction process, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame convened a special committee to review the case for several backing bands that had controversially been omitted when their lead singer got into the Hall of Fame. As a result, six backing groups were inducted alongside the rest of that year's class in 2012. Alphabetically, they were the Blue Caps, the Comets, the Crickets, the Famous Flames, the Midnighters, and the Miracles. Now, in my admittedly subjective opinion, it's not particularly super hard to identify who was backed by the Comets, the Crickets, or the Miracles. So name any one of the artists who were backed by either the Blue Caps, the Famous Flames, or the Midnighters. Well, the only one I knew was the Miracles, so here we go. I actually knew the comments and the critics, crickets, I think. The, go. Bill, Bill Haley and the comments and... Oh, Bill Haley, Buddy yeah. Ho- um, and Buddy, Haley, Buddy Holly and the crickets, I think. So uh, Smoke just, Robinson uh, is the Miracles. Yes, I know I know the Miracles, too, but yeah, yeah. okay. So I, I just I just know names like that, but I don't, I've never listened Midnighters. to the Midnighters. Yeah, so... That yeah. strikes some kind of bell with me, the Midnighters. Oh, the uh, who were famous acts who would have had a backing band and who were admitted solo? I used to be really good about knowing who was in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, despite not knowing music very well. Mostly because I grew up on what I affectionately call my dad is dad rock. So oh, we're going man, with whatever you're guessing. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm, I'm trying to phrase that. Blue Caps, the famous blooms. Okay, I can't look at the names. They're not going to help me. And only the groups are listed alphabetically, not the back. The people were backing, right? So yes, correct. Yeah, Holly. Yeah, all right. Okay. Yes. But Haley and Holly are in order. So yes, Robinson. Haley, Holly, Robinson are in order, yeah, but that's close yes, yes. okay, um, okay, no clues there. <laughs> so. I'm trying to think. I was hoping the Pips would be here. They're not. Oh man, I know that well, one. it's Gladys <laughs> so, Knight. Yes, I even I know um, that one. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I don't know that one. I was like, well, that's the one I know. So, oh man, who who would have been around in that era, like the 50s? Who who we know might be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but wouldn't have had their pants with them. Well, it's probably not going to be Bobby Darren then. Um, let's see. No, he uh, was more of a solo crew man. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm just throwing out the 50s names. Yeah, no, that's uh, Sinatra. It's not really okay. going to be any of the Rat Pack, I don't think, because they were solo acts. Who did Mr. Lou? Uh, Dirk or something? Uh, I was about to say Tommy Tutelan. That's not correct. Um, uh, Dirk something? I don't know. I was about to say Nowitzki. Also not correct. Not correct. Well, I, I was I was thinking of something less. No, I think you're literally yeah. a Dick Dale and Deltones. Dick, um, Dick, okay, Dick Dale. Okay, fine. Dick Dale. Yeah, that's, that's the Deltones. Okay. Um, okay, so not, not that. All right. Um, no. Uh, 50s, 50s. Who did At the, the Wipeout? At the Hop. It? Isn't that a 50s song? Who did that? Okay. Um, I'm just digging into my knowledge of 50s music, whatever Same it is. Here. Oh, oh they're, they're um, brothers, like Everly Brothers, right? But that's obviously not the good. Right, yeah, the, the, the Righteous Brothers, the Baby Brothers, that's not going to be it. Okay. Um, um, there's like the women who sing like Mr. Sandman, 
right? Uh, yeah, it's not going to be those girl groups like the, the yeah, Cordettes the and group. the... Yeah. Okay, the Cordettes, right. That's the Cordettes. Okay, or something. Uh, Cordettes, there's the Ronettes, there's all those. Uh, it won't be them because they are... Yes. yes. Um, part of me wonders if... And I, I'm probably on that Day of the Music Guide trying to hear yeah. but Richie Valens have a backing band? I don't think so. Well, I don't know anything. <laughs> so don't ask me either. Me. But that's the okay, right the era. Big the Big Holly is yes. part of it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, um, Richie Hall- Valens. Don McLean, the- maybe. Oh, Don I have McLean no idea. Midnighters. Richie Valens and the Blanks. Uh, I mean, he was just like very. What about like the Big Bopper or um, Waylon Jennings, right? Waylon Jennings is not a bad guest. You want to try that? I don't have sure. anything better. I don't. I, okay. I, I like that. Let's do it. Waylon Jennings. Okay. All right. Good guess, but unfortunately not correct. Daniel. Okay. Yeah, one of these is a lot easier than the other ones. I think, which is to say that I have no idea who the Blue Caps and the Midnighters are offhand. But um, the Famous Flames were James Brown's vocal quartet before the JBs, like in the 50s and 60s. So James Brown is my answer. I only need the JBs. Yeah, Blue Caps, not not the big bopper, but the man behind Bebop Alula, Gene Vincent. The Midnighters were the man who, contrary to popular belief, so contrary to popular belief, Chubby Checker did not uh, originate the twist. The twist was originally by Hank Ballard in the Midnighters. Uh, Yeah, the famous flames. Yes, James Brown is correct. Daniel and Lindsay now to steal from Eugene. The debate among modern scholars about whether third century Roman Emperor Philip the Arab had what characteristic has grown so complex that Wikipedia has an entire article of nearly 10,000 words devoted to it. By contrast, the article about the emperor himself, rather than the controversy, runs to only about 2,000 words. Uh, Okay. Um... Had what characteristic? Third century, Philip the Arab. I mean, did he have would... no arm? Could, I was gonna say. Did a, he have be... two different color eyes? <laughs> I was gonna say a beard. Oh, that could that could. I'm trying to think of like in sculpture, what they would be able to get wrong that we would still be able to debate today. Beard yeah. is on there. Well, no like, arm I mean, is obviously, also up there. Obviously, like you know, it, Islam is not really a going concern of the third third century here, so it's like it's not. But I mean, the, the the actual, the actual, you know, don't trim the corners of your beard thing predates that by quite a ways. Yeah. Just, I'm, I'm just, that's, that's, that's sort of where my, my, my brain is right now, but I'm, I'm listening if you've got other ideas. I mean, that's a really great guess. Again, I'm, I'm trying to think of what would show up in like an etching or a, or a sculpture and beard makes a lot of sense. It, it would be controversial if he didn't, which I think is really interesting. So I kind of like that. 10,000 words though. I mean, I could wax poetic about far more nonsensical things for 10,000 words. Yeah, but on Wikipedia, the free encyclopedia, anyone can edit? I don't know if I, I could. I'm sure you can find a community of scholars to back up anything with research. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't doubt it, honestly. And I'm guessing that there's been, it's again, that's why I bring art into this, because I'm guessing it's art critics who might be involved in this based on different portrayals of him. Again, like there was a mention of him, of, of the guy in the video game who may or may not have blonde hair, like it's it's again it's got to be down to like artistic rendering and and storytelling that like that was my own faulty i think that was my own faulty memory on that video game but it makes sense no but like my point is that like artistic and literary depictions are probably what lead to a ten thousand word discussion again i maybe it's my library background where i'm just used to people being pedantic about different iterations of things in books so it wouldn't surprise me but i kind of like beard you want to go for it sure beard you mean that as the, the modern slang term? Or the, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, either way. Uh, good guess, but not correct. Eugene? I don't know this. Um, all I know oh, about Philip yeah, the Arab. Oh, hmm. 
What did she pick up that I didn't? Let's see. Now she knows what it is. Okay. Now I'm thinking. Okay. Hold on a sec. Yes. All I know about Philip the Arab is that during his reign, Rome celebrated their 1,000th anniversary. He only reigned for like five years, and he's one of those pretty obscure emperors from the time of troubles. I mean, the the, the, the crisis of the third century. Um, originally, I was going to guess that he might have Jewish genes, <laughs> but... Maybe there's something to do with, yeah, beard. That would be, what characteristic? I mean, the most obvious one is whether he had dark skin or not, but that's already been covered with the earlier warm-up question, so I don't think he would go there. And now maybe uh, Lindsay's Jewish filter is, is corrupting my thoughts. <laughs> but, Glad to impose that on somebody who is not me. <laughs> yeah. Right, I'm just going to go with what I thought originally thought, which was that he had Jewish genes. Yeah, so uh, that's what you're locking in? Yes. Yeah, so I mean, religion is definitely relevant. Specifically, the debate is over whether Philip the Arab was the first Christian Roman emperor. Oh, so, okay. Makes more sense. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Okay. I don't know where I remember your, that from, that but very suddenly it came to me, and I'm oh, so a you moment knew it. too late. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Um, uh, the next Good question. I, I toyed with the wording of this, trying to make it both hard and accessible, but we'll see whether or not I succeeded. Okay, so for Eugene and Daniel, now to steal from Lindsay, I admit I have selfish reasons for rooting against the success of rising musical theater star Lauren Patton, namely that she's a dead ringer for one of my exes. But regardless of how I feel about it, in the most recent round of Tony nominations, so for the shows that were playing right up before the theaters closed, basically, Patton earned a nod for Best Performance by a Featured Actress in a Musical for a show that debuted on Broadway in 2019. Although Patton performed multiple songs in that musical, she drew the most plaudits for her passionate, cathartic, show-stopping belting of what musical number. And just in case that's not properly pinned, I'll add that this song and Your House are the only numbers she has in Act Two of the show. Okay, so this is going to be uh, the Alanis Morissette musical, Jagged Little Pill. So I'm going to guess it's I'm going to guess it's You Oughta Know. I have nothing to add here. If, so. I, if I if I had if I had to say any any passionate if there's any passionate cathartic showstop cathartic showstopping belting of anything, and I'm right about what musical it is, which I'm pretty sure I am, because Alanis Morissette has a song called Your House. That would be my guess. Would be You Oughta Know. I know nothing about Alanis Morissette except that yeah. she's saying a song called Jagged Little Pill, I think. So, okay, we're, so. we're, we're going to say you ought to know. All right, yeah. I think Jagged Little Pill isn't the title of one of her songs. It's a line from It's her album. Yeah. Okay. It's an album and, and a line. It's an album title, and it's the name of the musical. Right, yeah. So um, that did. Thank you, Daniel. <laughs> playing accessibly, maybe a little easier than I wanted it to, but oh well, yeah. I didn't have a bonus, but I probably should give one to Lindsay. So uh, can you name the character? that she plays in that musical? Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I can because they're not like real people or none of them are named Alanis. Um, yeah, I can I name her? No, technically that's a correct answer, but no, I can't. Okay, well it is something that rhymes with no. She's called Joe or Joanna. Ah, okay. Joanna. Yeah, that's unfortunately one of the few I'm not as, I love like studying the Tony noms and I, I don't know very much about Jack Littlefield other than the the music in it. So, all right. Next question. Yeah, that's, that's probably the one musical from 2019 I know anything about. So, bad luck there. Good luck for you. Hey. Yeah. Really good luck for me. 
<laughs> really, really good luck for Eugene. More than else. So turning from uninhabited islands like Devon Island to extremely populous islands, Salset Island is one of the world's 15 most populous non-continent islands. It's also quite possibly the world's most populous island whose name isn't widely known, even by the people who live on. That's because most residents of Salset Island would instead identify themselves as being from what major city that occupies a significant portion of the island. Okay, I want to say this, okay, I mean, my geography is pretty good, but I don't know Salset Island. But I want to, I mean, a lot of the most populous islands are in the Asia, of course, and mm -hmm. Indonesia in particular. Like, That's uh, what I was thinking. Know, Jakarta, you know, so I am I going to think that we're going for something like Bali, right? Okay. A major city. I mean, I like that. So, unless you can think of any other major, I mean, I mean, I know Bali has, you know, it's just like a, like Manila's on, on a, um, the Philippines is the other major area with a lot of islands that are highly I'm populated. I'm trying to think but... if there's anything from the Philippines that fits this, and I can't think of it. I like Bali. That that's a great yeah. answer. Yeah, I'm thinking Bali. That's that, that, I mean, if we had to get, I just want to make sure that there's nothing else that we're missing here. Like Singapore's on, you know, is, it, I mean, it could be Singapore. I mean, but and Bali's pretty popular. I I think this is a yeah. great guess. Yeah, we're gonna say Bali. Bali, Bali, I believe is the name of the island, not a city. Okay. Ah, oh, darn it. Okay, I thought it was a city. Okay. Okay, then I think I'm okay. Oops. Yeah. Pretty. Uh, I know the city. I'm pretty pretty sure I know this one. If I recall correctly, there were actually quite a quite a large number of islands that originally comprised this city, and it's been sort of filled in over the years. I'm not sure how many remain. It may just be the one. But I believe Salsat Island is where Mumbai is. Oh. Yeah, not not a Bali, but the home of Bollywood. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, I uh, I actually when I learned about it, I actually texted my parents and asked them both, do you know what Salsat or where Salsat Island is? And they were like, No, never heard of it. And I was like, Oh, okay, it's just it's the place where both of you were born and lived the first yeah. two years in life. Um, <laughs> just so you know. Yeah, it is Mumbai. One of the original islands that was filled in was Perel, which my um, my mother's maiden name, Perelker, means resident of Perel. There's oh. a Nanabai Lakshman Perelker Marga there, named after my great-grandfather. Very cool. Okay, so Daniel and Lindsay now to steal from Eugene. Yes. What tiny hamlet in Kent gave its name to a street and bridge club in London, which in turn gave its name to the bidding system that, per the uh, OEB, the official encyclopedia of bridge, is, quote, standard in British tournament play and widely used in other parts of the world. Hmm. Sorry, that didn't taste properly. There we go. So I'll just say, I think it'll be, I'll be very surprised if you get this. <laughs> but um, I, 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 the, only, the only club in, in, in uh, London that I'm familiar with is the Mayfair Club. That's more clubs than I can name in London. So, but I, I can't. I can't imagine it's just that easy because I think. I think that's a little bit. I mean, Eugene clearly knows it. I'm clearly not going to come up with anything better than that. I don't know. If you I'm not coming it. up with anything. So that's fine. Okay. Let's just yeah. Let's just say Mayfair. Mayfair. All right. Yeah. If the if the category were Adam Curtis documentaries or uh, <laughs> on the uh, Monopoly board in London, uh, Mayfair might come up, but uh, yeah, that's not it here. Eugene. Uh, so I've had the pleasure of playing against a lot of British players, and they have their own bidding system. They always refer to it as a call. So I think that's what it is. Yes, a call is correct. Not quite enough to put you back in the lead, but you're very close on Daniel's heels now. All right. So now uh, Eugene and Daniel to steal from Lindsay. So this is the fall for X format I've used before. Basically, I 
read a quote and I redact, I replace someone's name with an X and it's your job to figure out who that is. So I'm going to read you part of a 2017 New York Times interview with director Andy Muschietti in which he discusses the influence of a certain artist on a scene from his movie, It. So question, how did you conceive of the scene? His answer, it's a literal translation of a very personal childhood fear. In my house, there was a print of a X painting that I found terrifying. And the thought of meeting an incarnation of the woman in it would drive me crazy. A little later, the questioner asks, what scared you about X's work? And Muschietti responds, he often does these portraits with elongated characters. His visions of humans were with elongated necks, crooked faces, and empty eyes most of the time. It was so deformed that as a child, you don't really see that as an artist's style. You see it as a monster. So identify the person, also a clear influence on Muschietti's earlier film, Mama, whose surname I have redacted and replaced with X. Hmm. Any thoughts? I want to read the... I, I don't do as well listening to questions as I do reading them, so I want to read the question first. Hold on a second. Okay, so it's an art question. Yeah, it's an art question. So I'm trying I'm to think, who, okay. who might fit that description? Elongated necks and crooked faces and empty eyes. Besides like, like Muke, you know, like... Yeah, I'm thinking Mogdigliani. I was thinking about Modigliani too, yeah. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce his name, yeah, but that is my best guess for this. I'm, I'm not into modern art, I'm into I think classical that, art, that, yes. That, those, those were the two that occurred to me straight off, and, and the fact that Modigliani occurred to you too, I think is, is good enough if you want to go with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's go with it. Let's say Modigliani. All right, and yeah, that's correct. Yeah, okay. Yeah, there isn't a ton of, uh, not much, I, I kind of, all the supporting clues I kind of put into the question so there's not much left over for a bonus, unfortunately. That's okay. So now going into the final cycle of these, each of you will get one more specialist question and two more chances to steal. And we'll begin with Eugene and Lindsay trying to steal from Daniel. There may have been a time when this man didn't stand out from the crowd, but after he won either the world championship or an Olympic gold medal in freestyle wrestling, 62 kilogram division, every year between 1987 and 1992, in addition to earning two NCAA Division I championships and two gold medals apiece in both the Goodwill Games and the Pan Am Games, we definitely ought to recognize his name. What is that name? It's a sports, the sports question, so oh, it's on me, right? Okay, so... I mean, I'm going to try and help, but... <laughs> this man didn't stand out from the crowd. After he won. So he's I know also there was a, a basketball yeah. player, right? I just, or no, NCAA could be wrestling. I'm an idiot. So he's a wrestler. Uh, it's like, uh, yeah... Uh, I'm not, not no, I just didn't see it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I know about wrestling is that the, there was like a famous upset of Soviet champion in the Olympics by, I think, Rulon Gardner, and that's it. That's all I know. Um, I mean, that's something. I know, but I I'm can, pretty sure. Like, but I think it's Greco Roman wrestling, not freestyle. So I'm pretty sure I mean, it's I can't wrong. name <laughs> any sure. real, like, I can name WWE folks. From over the last many yeah, years, but that's, I don't that's, know if that's going to help us here. That's that's even worse. That's, so. Right? No, like yeah. if you want to say the guy you said, that's yeah. Sure. I mean, that's all we got. So, Rulon sure. Gardner, Gardner, you like him, Gardner? All right, Gardner, just Gardner. Daniel, this is this is kind of funny because yeah, this isn't the kind of wrestling that I know a lot about, and it's also it's also like a weird era, right? So it's not it's a weird era, and it's a weird weight class. So 60, 62 kilograms is like roughly the 135-ish range. And if you ask me about famous guys from the 60s and 70s, I'd be fine. If you ask me about famous guys from the 20, 2010s, I'd be fine. And I'm getting, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to feel real dumb when I say this, because I know I'm getting this guy's era wrong. 
But is this Dan Gable? It is not. Yeah, um, okay. Yeah, I, I, you know, I always tell people on this, you know, you know, there's no penalty for guessing. So when there's no penalty for guessing, always guess. And if you're trying to guess, you know, there's maybe a generic American. What name should you guess? Lucky Johnson. Sometimes, yeah, Johnson. I mean, Johnson's become popular now. When I was in cuisine, they would always say guess Smith. And if you need a first name, John Smith. There are only a few famous people named John Smith, though. The, the Pocahontas guy and um, champion wrestler, John Smith. Okay. Oh, that's a pretty obscure one. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually listening back to the ep- episode 12 when I'm currently editing, and I realized that when talking about it, Cheyenne Fletcher, the, the contestant, started talking about John Smith as like another dominant, along with Alexander Carell and another dominant wrestler. And I was like, I actually said to him, I'm going to write a question about John Smith at some point just to see if people will guess it. And now I yeah. have. Now you have, and we did not. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I knew that was too late for Gable, but like, I was never going to get that otherwise. <laughs> All right, Daniel and Lindsay now to try and steal from Eugene. So Charles Gounod's second most recognizable short composition or maybe most if you're not a fan of Alfred Hitchcock, was his 1853 Ave Maria, which was in turn based on a prelude taken from J.S. Bach's The Well-Tempered Clavier. Historians of music agree that Gounod was almost certainly introduced to Bach's work, which had largely fallen out of favor by the early 19th century, by what composer who led the Bach revival movement? When Gounod traveled to Leipzig to meet this man after winning the Prix de Rome, this man is said to have greeted him with, so you're the madman my sister has told me about. Okay. So so mid-19th century German composer, basically, is yeah. who we're looking for here. I used, to have, oh, I used to have a Pavlov for German composer. Apparently, it's left my mind. He's French. Oh, my God. I'm so bad at this. Who has a sister? Who has, I mean, they all, oh, uh, Schumann had a sister. Let's do it. Schumann. Okay. If you're, if you're uh, thinking of Clara White, that was his. I am, and it's his wife. God dang it. Oh. Jeez. Sorry. That's all right. All right, uh, Eugene? Yeah, I thought this was actually easier than the, the earlier question because of the sister angle. And the sister in question was named Fanny. Yeah. Fanny Mendelssohn. Yep. So the, the, the person is Felix Mendelssohn. And yeah, he, he led the Bach revival. He was really important. Bach would have been very obscure if it had not been for him. So. I'm sorry, Daniel. Okay. Just, right. There's uh, not about that one. Yeah, I think Fanny Hensel was her married name. But yeah, Fanny Mendelssohn, she's often known by. She's a composer of ours, of ours you know, as well, so. But, yeah. yeah, like, uh, like Schumann, uh, many, many um, of that era were composers that were sort of not remembered as well as the, the men until in recent years they've been rediscovered. Mm-hmm. All right, and that actually did push Eugene into the lead. And it looks like actually, yeah, since now the last question, Eugene and Daniel on the same side, that was actually the decisive question that gave Eugene victory. Ah, oh, I feel so at fault for that. All right. <laughs> so this last question will be played for pride. The, the outcome has already been decided, but of course, you know, we're all playing for pride and, and the ability to show off knowledge and passion, not for winning. So Eugene and Daniel, that is still from Lindsay. A technology called DeathCast, which can predict the day that people will die, and an app called Last Friend, which connects deckers or people on their last day of life with others in their situation so they won't have to die alone, are central to the plot of what 2017 Adam Silvera YA novel, whose title removes a lot of suspense about the fates of protagonist Mateo and Rufus. Oh, <laughs> shit. This is called something like, this is called something like they die in the end. <laughs> I'm serious. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I'm, I'm like I said, I haven't been following media since my kids, not, so I don't know. This rings a this rings a lot of bells. I know there's a book called I mean it's not called that, but it's it's called something like that. That's what I got. They die in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sure. If that's what you got, let's go with it. Our answer is they die in the end. All right, Lindsay, is that correct? Oh, uh, you're very close. They both die at the end, I believe, is the official title. Uh, plug That's for Adam Silver. So he's one of my favorites. Read everything he's ever written. But yeah, they both die at the end is the title. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't give it to us. <laughs> I'm sorry, oh, but it's close. It's close. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, titles generally have to be exact, and especially in the super hard round. Yeah. Yes. So definitely. Oh, really good I'm guess. impressed that you pulled that though. That was so yeah. close. I've seen it. I've seen. I've either seen the cover somewhere or heard it referenced before. Like, I'm not unfamiliar with this book, but I just couldn't. He, uh... he writes great stuff, so yeah. highly, highly recommend it. He's done some some of this kind of like science fictiony type stuff, as well as just some right. traditional YA romance. It's great. All right, so uh, you know, appropriately, we are all alive at the end of the game. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so we end on scores of I'll, I'll go back and recheck these what i have now is daniel 38.2 eugene 41.1 Lindsay 17.0 very good game from everyone and you know looking each of you will get a chance to make a, a final statement about anything you like it can be about the game the world at large or anything else under the sun as long as it's not too long or offensive it'll be kept in and we'll go in reverse order of placement so start with eugene reverse order of placement so or, like, yeah, well, okay. yeah, first, second, third goes first. Okay, maybe the same. Okay, okay. well, I've, I've, it's been a pleasure playing with with both of you. And thank you very much, Yogesh, for the questions. They were challenging, they were interesting, and I hope people found the, found the subjects that we talked about of interest. I know I picked some pretty obscure stuff because... I, I don't know. I just like I like just like doing deep dives on stuff nobody else cares about. So, um, but... Uh, I think that this was a great experience. Thank you so much, Yogesh, for your time and hard work. Daniel? Yeah, uh, just to echo what Eugene said, thanks so much for writing and hosting this and having us on. It was a real pleasure. Thanks to Lindsay and Eugene for playing along. Eugene for being up at whatever time it is in Taipei right now. 6 a.m. 6 a.m. Yeah, I I I had a blast. Thanks very much. All right, Lindsay? Yeah, thank you to Yogesh for putting this all together. I really appreciate it. It was so much fun. I can't wait to, I have a lot to research today. I like doing that after I miss questions. So I'm really excited. Thank you to Eugene and Daniel. That was really fun to both work with you and against you in various rounds. It was nice to meet you both. And yeah, I'm a librarian. So I feel like I got to plug this. Read, read more books. There are so many good books out there. Read them. I definitely agree with that. I think we all, we all do. <laughs> and uh, that, that's kind of how we got into the space where we're able to answer these questions. And yeah, thank you all for the kind words. And all right. So we, we went a little bit over time, not too badly, but a little bit. So I don't yep. want to keep you here any longer. I have to. Oh, thank you. That was so much fun. Yeah, thank, thank you. That was a ton of fun. Those were, those were really great, difficult questions. And uh, yeah. best of luck tomorrow in our OQL game. Yeah, good luck. Please hand Rob's ass to him. Formal <laughs> request. <laughs> Daniel might not. I don't know if Daniel knows this. Uh, Rob's my partner, so. Oh, no, I didn't know that. I, I, yeah. I, was, I was thinking about it because that's actually funny because like, I was thinking about that match now. It's just like, I'm, I'm very familiar with Yogesh and Patrick from previous competitions, but I don't know this Rob character whatsoever. Uh, yeah, so we're both, he's my partner. He and I write yeah. some of the, the unofficial friendlies together. 
That's um, okay. That, is, that, that name rings a bell now that you mentioned it. Yeah. yeah Goldstein Sobzak is us, yep. but yeah, he has not, this is both our first season kind of doing this kind of stuff. We're both learned leaguers, but yeah, it's, we're having a lot of fun, but please, he, you'll learn. He likes to shit talk and he has an ego. So hand his ass to him. <laughs> uh, you don't say, <laughs> but yeah, thank you. Eugene. We watched the sun come up where you are. That's yes. insane. I, yes. I was just thinking that myself. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, like I said, I've, I've been on sort of somewhat specific time schedule for my kid, right? She has to go to school in America. Oh, so I see. Yeah. That's so I was wondering when you said break, I was like, it's got to be school. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, yeah, it was great. And I, I wish I, I mean, I, I was sort of caught flat-footed by the statement. I should have thought about it because I, I might want to say something about masks because it just feels like I've been lucky to be here in Taiwan and, you know, they, they, they shut down the island early when COVID hit, yeah. and then everyone wears masks. There's no complaints about it. There's no arguments about it. And there's just no kid COVID here, period. So my kids can go to school, you know, in physical. I can go to concerts. I can go to restaurants. It's been a real eye-opening experience, and I wish more people knew that, you know, just following science works. <laughs> so, so but, I, I mean, I, I think most of the people who listen to Yogesh's podcast already know that. So yeah. it's probably not necessary. I, I don't think it's necessarily the hyper-educated folks that are, are the worrisome population. Yeah. Um, but as somebody who is immunocompromised and has been very, very scared to go back to work, but has still had to, I appreciate you saying that. So, yeah, uh, I, as, 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 as somebody who uh, is on kidney dialysis and was literally doing this during the game, good times. Wow. I got vaccinated Sunday though, so I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I'm in the clear. So. Awesome. I can start scheduling mine next week, apparently. So fingers crossed there. But I, I feel your pain. I'm a cancer survivor. So I've done plenty yeah. of IV bag treatments myself over the years. Yeah. Are, are any of you going to the OQL Highbrow League? I heard about it the other day. Oh, I'm going to get my ass handed to me, but yes, I am. I'm okay. debating it because I will get my ass handed to me if I do it. I think Rob's doing it, but I'm still up in the air. Yeah, I'm not. So trash is much more my forte. As yeah, you can I'm not trying. Categories I chose here. <laughs> right, <laughs> I was just like a fish out of water flailing all over the place. But, yeah, yeah, I'm so. I'm a track player, but I might just to learn. So, mm-hmm. right. In fact, if it weren't for that Mimmers Well League I just entered, where they talked about books to Huda, I wouldn't have probably not gotten the pipe organ question in one. So it's it, you know, learning always helps. It absolutely does. I gotta go. It was really lovely to. Yeah, good to meet yeah. you all. I gotta good go too. You all. all right. Hope you nice Bye. Talk to you later. Thanks. Thanks again, Yogesh. This has been episode eight of season two of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shroud. Thanks for listening.